Let's pretend for a second that your only contact with anyone under the age of 35 is what you read about them in The Times, The Telegraph, or if you're stateside, the NYT and The Washington Post. You'd thumb through the papers each morning and find yourself totally baffled by the transformation of social norms by these younger generations. There are all these new pronouns to learn, racial acronyms to absorb, and even the beloved works of Roald Dahl and Ian Fleming are being carefully pruned of offensive language. University academics report being hounded out of their own seminars for trying to teach difficult material, or having syllabi ripped up due to an overrepresentation of the pale, the male, and the stale. They allege a culture of sensitivity and censorship gripping arts and humanities departments across the nation, with students' demands for recognition, representation, and right on language becoming ever more burdensome. Some even become fixtures on news and current affairs programming, figureheads for a movement who just want to be able to call men men, women women, and corner shops. Well, you get my drift. And it's not just the tweed jackets of the academy who find themselves besieged by the furious youth. It's impossible to navigate the opinion section of any newspaper without finding some columnist or other claiming to an audience of millions that they've been cancelled. Something truly awful must be going on if some of the most powerful people in society, people with platforms and money and social status, find themselves terrified of logging into Twitter in the course of the average day. Maybe the government ought to step in. Maybe, in the interest of protecting free speech, they should do something about the plague of no platforming and student protest. Okay, when you spell it out like that, the absurdity of claiming that civilization is being brought low by a bunch of debt-laden students becomes painfully obvious. Though it's undeniable that social media has made politically charged discussion more hostile, it's also batshit to treat a random Twitter account and someone with a big house, a book deal and a staff job at the Times as though they're equally powerful. People with platforms are used to one-way broadcast, so no wonder the audience talking back feels like something akin to attempted murder. But perhaps there's been an overcorrection on the part of leftists and progressives to claim that nothing's changed at all cancel culture doesn't exist, or if it does, it's only a force for good. And if you've been in universities at all in the past decade, you'll see that something has changed. Questions of representation and identity have become more prominent, and what should be taught in the classroom and how, fiercely contested. The boundaries between what's going on in the media, in the academy and online can get a bit blurry, and that's itself something worth exploring. I'm lucky enough to be joined by my colleagues Aaron Bistani and Dahlia Gabriel to discuss the truth about snowflakes. How did this moral panic come to dominate British and American media and what is it doing to all of our brains? All right, let's start with the big one. Is Generation Snowflake a real thing? Who wants to go first? You asked uh, Dahlia's closer to Generation Snowflake than me. (laughs) I'm the geriatric millennial. (laughs) Your generation fossil. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's broadly an invention of tabloid media because I think a lot of the things that Generation Snowflake are accused of doing are in fact things that are pretty normal or should be pretty normalised in the academy. The challenging of canon, the engagement with canon, the critical engagement with canon, the idea that the canon is not something that falls from the sky into our laps but is something that is engaged with and formed and reformed and formed in different, you know, on different 
grounds, depending on, you know, the historical And by the canon, what do you mean, just to clarify? I mean, like, the idea, I mean, in literature, it would be, like, the idea of, like, particular texts or writers that are considered to be, like, pioneering in particular genres of, you know, of, or, like, archetypal of, like, particular genres. Is that, I don't I know mean, if that's for, what for, you for would us, say. For us, how we kind of absorbed the idea of the canon was like you start with Beowulf and mm. then you have Chaucer and then mm. you've got Shakespeare and then you've got um you know the the Augustans and then you've got you know uh 18th century literature 19th century literature culminating in Kurzea's disgrace for some reason um, <laughs> like that was this... always culminated in Ted Hughes oh no 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 we we uh decided to replace uh <laughs> on our introduction to literature module decided to replace Toni Morrison's beloved the only person of colour and one of only two women on the um, modules text and a brilliant book, a good book. Um, decided to replace it with uh, Kutzea's Disgrace which is like the end of apartheid difficult for me <laughs> like, I mean don't get me wrong that's, cra- that's also I don't think that's very good I mean maybe I'm I really like Disgrace I read it about 20 years ago to be fair I thought I thought it was a great novel um, but I thought that I mean, we're going to get into these questions of representation. I was just like, mm. oh, like... We nearly got there. We just, you, you took it mm. away at the last minute. I mean, so that's how I would explain the canon. It's yeah. this idea of seminal text. Yeah. By the way, the word seminal comes from the word semen, <laughs> um, which kind of like beget one another in a lineage mm. of greatness. Yeah, and it, it's based on a very kind of like linear development model of like what greatness is and the very concept of whether or not there should be a canon itself has come under scrutiny at many points in the 20th century in literary criticism. But I think that, so if we're talking about the specific academic context of like in which Generation Snowflake is used, I think it's it, it kind of like is a is a moral panic in a way that is not reflecting a, it's there might be a, a something to, the, to a shift in mm-hmm. what the kind of conversation, but it's not nearly as dramatic or radical as I think it's being portrayed. What do you think? I'm a big canon bro. Yeah. Like I, I believe in an idea. He got guns. I believe in the idea of a canon. I believe in the idea of a canon. The idea that there are certain universal texts. I need to have lots of caveats here. I don't mean the existing canon, but throughout global literature, there are certain texts which are profound, outstanding pieces of of work and have a, a broader message. And that could be the Shah in, in Persian literature. Um, the Conference of the Birds by Atta, a piece of Sufi mysticist literature. You know, I think that's, I think somebody in the West can read that and go, this is a really interesting book, has lots of really interesting ideas. Or if you look at European literature, somebody like Goethe mm. or um, Tolstoy, I think somebody in Iran or Afghanistan or India or Sub-Saharan Africa can read that and go, this is pretty good. Mm. There's lots of really interesting, universal... I think there's, there's an idea that they appeal to sort of universal human qualms, mysteries, ideas. So I, I don't I don't think the canon like is a big thing, but I think dispensing with it as an idea has downsides. Like I do think that Goethe is a better writer than, you know, somebody who just happened to be fashionable yesterday and published a book. Mm-hmm. I think Goethe's fantastic. All theory is grey, the tree of life is golden green. In German it sounds much better. So I I, <laughs> I and I think the point is to to, to challenge and to change it. Right, mm. I think that's and I think that's a useful exercise. And you, somebody can engage with the canon, and these are a bunch of commonly understood texts. And actually, people go, "This is kind of this is kind." Of, I read it. You said we need to read it. It's kind of shit. I don't really get it. And there are lots of books in the canon, mm. by the way. I just read and go, "I've kind of lost on me." And you sort of try and do the classical thing, right? You read like you know Virgil and Homer, and it's like, "Don't slag off Homer oh, in no, my presence." No, 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 no. 
look, if James Butler's watching, I'm not saying those are bad authors, but you go all the way from those guys all the way through to, let's say, the late 20th century, it's lots of crap, right? <laughs> so, yeah, the idea that you should read something just because people read it is faulted, but I think it's, and also it gives something for you to to respond to. So on the on the... On the canon thing, I think it's important. I also think it's useful for people to have something to rebel against. Mm. I think that's useful, right? I, I don't like a society where we go, well, we don't actually value anything and we don't we don't really elevate any particular texts or ideas. You know, well, we can all make it up as we go along. I think it's good for young people to have something to rebel against. Mm. A society is dead when young people no longer surprise you, <laughs> right? And if, if, young, if, if the younger generations in a society aren't surprising you, something has gone deeply wrong. I think that's really important for older people to remember. So on Generation Snowflake, is it a real thing? Where do you stand? I didn't answer your question, did I? Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's broadly a confection of the media. And I think actually a lot of it is, a lot, not all of it, but a lot of it, as you both have sort of said, is, is projection actually from the very people who think mm. they're so sort of robust and tough. Yeah, I think it's it's people who are very used to the entire world being curated around their comfort and their ego, having it disrupted in the most like minor and like brought oftentimes quite inconsequential ways. Yeah, you know, I'm not mm. going to say that every single time it's inconsequential, but if you're talking about like a student asking you a question about why you've put a text on on a curriculum, that shouldn't be that shouldn't make you fold like a deck of cards, you know. I'm, and I'm I think gonna... it's that kind of disruption of a comfort and a un and a sense of like, I mean, whiteness is the universal against everything that is defined. Of that being like disrupted in very mild ways, being read as intolerance, abuse, whatever. I'm going to jump in and break up the cosy consensus because mm, I hate it when people agree around this table too much. One is, I of course agree with you about the moral panic component. And I think that the word snowflake as a pejorative, as something which is denigrating, is something which should be chucked out the window. Mm. But what I think that this horrible caricature is responding to is something that's real. And it is a shift mm. in norms and cultural expectations mm particularly within elite universities, but not solely confined to it, mm. because I think those graduates are now taking on roles within, say, Netflix or mm. within publishing houses or, you know, within magazines, for instance. And so it's something which has like a broader kind of cultural impact outside of the seminar room. Mm. And so what I think some of those changes are is that one, a real interest in representation and identity. So after I think... Decades, if not centuries, of going, as a student, all you're supposed to do is subordinate yourself. And so even if the stuff that you're getting is misogynist or racist, you're being treated abominably by your seminar leader, just, you know, like it or lump it. There is kind of almost a correction to that. And at times an overcorrection, which is to go, how is my experience, my vulnerability and my trauma central to mm this educational space. I think that's something which has changed. I think the second thing which has changed for me was not that people are wanting to read things through the lens of their identity, which I think everybody does and mm. is natural, but a refusal to read things mm. because of an assumption that it was going to clash with some aspect of their identity. Mm. And I can give you an example of this, which is I was teaching a module about uh, the queer confessional. And the idea was that you start with uh, St. Augustine's confessions and then you move through... Uh, to the AIDS crisis in the present day. And so for me, you start with St. Augustine's Confessions because it's that's really the beginning of what we understand the confessional to be in writing. And also I think it's hella gay. 
I think if you I think if you actually read it, it is super duper gay. <laughs> and I had students who were like, I don't want to read this. This is, you know, it, this is, you know, a cisgender, heterosexual, you know, white guy. And I was like, okay, one, he was a doctor of the Catholic Church, like a 5% chance he was straight. <laughs> um, but it was almost a, a resistance to it because of what they thought the text was. And mm. I think that they're responding to a place that it has had in that canon Augustine. of greatness. Yeah. Is he white? Well, I don't fucking know. I, I mean, this is the problem with trying to I don't think he retroactively is. apply well, exactly. very contemporary identity categories. Well, I mean, he's from, he was from North Africa, wasn't he? Well, I just don't think it's right to call St. Augustine white. And I also think as a doctor of the church, just probably not straight either. Like, I, I think he was darker than me, put it that way. I mean, I, I know Iranians get very pale. <laughs> well, basically see-through in winter, but, but like, I mean, look, I pretty just, dark, I'm sure. I just think that like as a way of reacting to a text of going, mm. I assume I'm not going to see myself in this, so I'm not going to open it. Mm. I think that is something which is newer. Mm. And I think that it is in response to there has been some kind of cultural, if not fully social, political and economic upheaval, mm. which has changed the status of different identity signifiers. And that's playing out in classrooms. In some, some of the ways it plays out, I think is good and it's healthy. And in some ways I'm seeing it play out and I'm like, I'm worried about this. I don't think it's a civilizational threat. I think everyone at the times needs to calm the fuck down. Mm. But it is quite distinct, the focus on representation. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the argument, obviously, that you can only engage with art or text that reflects your experience. I mean, it's just that is clearly not a viable way to approach like academic work. Mm. Clearly, I think. More broadly, though, we can also have a conversation about the fact that, like, a lot of, you know, traditional scholarship, you know, white male scholars don't think that they should have anything to do with work produced by black women, work produced by people of colour, work produced, you know, they don't see because they don't, and this is true not just for academic scholarship, but true for films, you know, when films, there's this whole idea that, you know, films... Um, that are seen to be made about people of colour are not considered to be commercial because white people won't see them. So actually, you know, this idea of like, I'm only going to watch something that reflects my experience, the history of that is much more prevalent amongst, you know, I think the onus to change that is actually as much on white people and men um, as it is on, you know, at the moment it's like people of colour and white people are seen as the people who are projecting that kind of politics. I think the question of like representation though, I've, you know, I've had similar experiences. Um, you know, I was teaching a class on, you know, it was a kind of interdisciplinary history of London, right? So we did all Sick. different, I know, it's like, <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't not talk about London. Um, but like it was, you know, so we were looking at like architectural stuff. We were looking at, you know, um, stuff from urban studies. We were looking at, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And we were looking at literature as well. And I had two texts on that I put on the course. One of them was The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvon. The other one was... Great book. Fantastic book. The other one was The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. And I had, you know, a young Jewish student sort of raise this with me and say, you know, this is an anti-Semitic play. Why are we learning about it? And rather than, you know write a letter into the Times about how dumb all my students are. I'm like, Rupert Murdoch, I've yeah, got another yeah, yeah. one. I, we sat down and I said, look, you know, I explained why I put it on the course. And I said, the reason I put this on the course is because, yes, there is anti-Semitism in this play. 
And to me, this is a great way to explore how the foundational conceptions of race in early modern Europe yeah. were structured by anti-Semitism. And also, to, uh, it evokes a really interesting conversation about the relationship between race and labor and the way in which particular racialized people get tracked into forms of labor that become racialized and racializing. So we had that conversation and I explained why I put it on the course. And I was very clear that, you know, the way I'm approaching this is not because often, often we get this idea that the two options are you don't teach it at all because it has anti-Semitism or racism in it, or you teach it as if it's a gift from God, like dropped into our laps as an ahistorical piece of genius that transcends all political, historical context. And if you, if you concede that there's something less than politically pure about it, then you're trashing it. Mm. To me, the middle way, like the ground that I would actually occupy is that this is a foundational text of racialized conceptions of Europe. And we learn so much by, by talking about it in that context. And because it's brilliantly written, it becomes, it holds a lot of contradictions in it that, you know, political treaties can't really do. That's why we love literature. And, you know, we engage with it. And by the end of the class, the girl wrote her essay on it. And she wrote a great essay on oh, it. Oh, wow. That's and amazing. I think that it's like, I think that there's a tendency sometimes to enter into these interactions and to expect it to go a certain way because of how you read it being portrayed by the tabloid media. Mm. And then in this weird manifesting way, you kind of create it mm. by creating this hostile environment where you feel attacked. Had she, had she you read know? The Merchant of Venice before encountering it in the seminar? I don't think so. I think, she, I think that she had just heard, you know, she had heard about, you know, this idea of like mm. this character, Shylock, and, you know, like the kind of obviously used as a slur, um, as an anti-Semitic slur. And I think that she, it was more that she'd heard about it. Mm. And I just, I think it's fine to ask that question. I think it's, it's, and I think as a teacher, you should have an answer to it, you know, and the student doesn't have to buy into your answer of, but you should be able to answer that question without losing your shit, basically, I mean, or taking it personally. I mean, I, you know? I'm a, a, I think one of the worst things about me is that I'm a Shakespeare nerd and I mm. fucking love Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. And not it's incredible. A, I mean, not just because I think he's some singular genius, but what I love about drama is that it's living. Mm. Yeah. And the plays weren't written to be studied. The plays mm. were written to be performed. And Shakespeare is a very non-interventionist playwright. I mean, mm. one, we don't get any text directly from him. It's after his death, a load of the actors got together and from memory mm. uh, committed them to text. And the stage directions are minimal. It's basically like, oh, yeah, it's your turn. You come on now. It's like, but how am I supposed to um, act the speech? Like, oh, go to town. Um, mm. and, and, and that's why I think... Um, Shakespeare is endured for so long. It's not actually because he's so present, but actually because he's so absent and it allows directors and producers mm. to really do something different with it. And Merchant of Venice for me is one of those great plays like Othello, mm. which is about race and has transformed through history, through various stagings of it. So you mm. can have a version of Merchant of Venice where Shylock is just an anti-Semitic caricature mm. of a Jewish person. Just like you can have a staging of Othello where it's giving in to his animal, bestial nature because he's a black man. Or you mm. can have stagings and versions which emphasize their experiences of racism. Because 
Yeah. Shylock's speech, famously in the courtroom. Um, he hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, called my friends, heated mine enemies, and what's the reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, and if you mm. prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, mm. do we not laugh? Um and it's this wonderful speech of him saying, I'm just like you in every way. I'm just mm. like you in every way. And when it comes to the pound of flesh, he goes, and if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will mm. resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why revenge? Mm. So you can have him be like, well, he's pulled towards revenge because he's a Jew. Mm. Or you can have him be pulled mm. towards revenge because he's mimicking everyone else in Venice. Mm. And... For me, it's about this thing of going, ah, oh, let's treat texts as alive yeah. rather than these dead things to hold up and venerate and only read in one way mm. or to want to distance ourselves from them and go, no, we're nothing like that. Mm. You know, that's anti-Semitic or it's racist or it's misogynistic, mm. whatever else it is. And like, you go away over here. Mm. Because mm. I read that and I go, there's 50 ways to play that, yeah. if not more. But isn't isn't the media and life not like that anymore? So like... Even for somebody like me, I'm in my late 30s. You know, I remember phones which you turn like this. <laughs> now you show them to teenagers. You, you know, like the test of like, um, if you go ring, ring, pick up the phone, it shows your age because, you know, boomers go like this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Gen yeah. X's go like this. You know, Zoomers go like this. Yeah. You know, Aaron would go like this. Like the bacon. Yeah. Hello. Um, <laughs> you know, but even for somebody like me, pre-internet, pre-social media, you were confronted with arguments and people and ideas that you didn't like all of the time. You would watch the six o'clock news go, this guy's an asshole, this person's wrong, but that was the news. There were four channels, there were a few newspapers. And now you can live in your feed. And that's not just young people, by the way. That, mm. that's, that's a broader social issue of you can live in your feed and you cannot be exposed to things you disagree with. That applies on the right, it applies on the left. I'll never forget, my wife's a counsellor. And the year before Counselor she... like local council, not counsellor like, and how do you feel about that? She could do that too. She's a very talented woman. But no, she's a, she's, a, she's a, an elected legislator. Um, and I remember one night we're going back from a local election. I think it was the year she won, or maybe it was the year before. And there's a taxi. Maybe it was the year before. Um, it was 2019, actually, May 2019. And the taxi driver says, "I get all sorts in my cab." And I go, "All right, okay." I'm, I'm sure my dad's a taxi driver, so I'm sure he's got some, going to say something funny. Yeah, the other day somebody was here. They said we should stop Brexit. Can you believe that? No, <laughs> it wouldn't remain. And I'm thinking, it's a big, okay, let's say it's minority. It's a big minority. Like, <laughs> it's not that outlandish. I thought he was going to say something like completely crazy. So he literally didn't acknowledge the reality of half the country. And that's not just the right that thinks mm, like that. It's mm. also a, a big chunk of the left too, right? And, and so I think that's like an outgrowth of, of media more broadly. Personally, as I've got older, I love engaging with conservative thinkers. You know, I have an audio book of Roger Scruton in my ears and I think, God, this is shit, <laughs> right? God. But I, I think I'm a Marxist, right? And as a Marxist, my belief, and of course the right-wingers were, it's a belief, it's, not, yeah, it's a scientific method, but it's mm. also, this is my personal belief, is that capital is the most revolutionizing force in the history of humankind. The bourgeoisie is the most revolutionary class 
in the history of our species. And so you can't be a conservative and at the same time want free market capitalism. Because you can't conserve anything when the bourgeois, the class that you identify with, is constantly revolutionizing the means of production and society and space. Go outside, look at a picture of Dubai 30 years ago today. How different are they? Why? Because people were trying to make returns on the money they were investing. Money, capital money. It's about making money from money. Ergo, capitalism. So I love listening to conservatives because I think you've got this analysis of the world, agree or disagree, but you haven't got the slightest idea why you're so upset with things and you should read some marks. So sometimes, 10% of the time, I think, you know what, there's something there. Sometimes. Peter Hitchens on the Second World War, I think he's got a lot to offer. But then I'll, you know, Roger Scruton or whatever, and I'll think, this is absolute crap. But it's good to know it's absolute crap, and it's good to know why it's absolute crap, why you think it's absolute crap. It's not, I don't think it's good enough, particularly for people on the left, socialists, activists, people who think they're intellectually engaged with the world, to say, it's crap because somebody else said. That's not mm. good enough. I mean, I wonder how this fits into the no-platform conversation. The reason why I say that is because when you look at how the snowflake stereotype has emerged, it has been intimately connected with a moral panic about no platforming. So the reason why I call it a moral panic is because actually when you look at the data, there has been very, very few instances of actual no platforming at British universities. What you have had a lot of is protest. And that mm. for me is a sign of healthy democratic participation, especially if, you know, it's no one saying like, you know, hang David Willits or something, right? It's not an act of violence or intimidation. It's an act of protest. I think that's fine. And yet the specter of no platforming has taken up a huge amount of space in um, the British tabloid and columnist imagination. So I think that there is a big aspect of it, which is moral panic. And also... Anecdotally, from my own experience of working within this organization, one of the things that we've all had to like tread lines around is this idea of who do we platform? Because when Aaron, you interviewed Peter Hitchens, mm. there is a minority of our audience, but um, you know, it's present all the same, saying, how can you platform him? Right? It doesn't really matter what the conversation is, how you're engaging with him. It's like, how could you platform mm -hmm. him? And part of that is maybe reacting to something which is true, which is the process of... Um, inviting someone onto media as a process of legitim legitimization in some way. So how does this all fit together, Great right? Mm. I think that the no platforming conversation is so interesting because it assumes that like everyone has a platform all the time. And it's like, actually, the platform is very, very tiny. And the vast majority of humans on earth are excluded from it, you know, that, and, and, and I think that this idea that some people are denied a platform that they have an eternal right to is a kind of, is is a bizarre thing to say when it's like practices of editorialization and curation like always involves processes of inclusion and exclusion like i can't design a curriculum that has every single writer that has ever written a thing on it like it's going there's going to be like people that aren't included in it but i think that the question of you know like how can you platform something i think it's fine to ask that and i think that you should have an answer to it and again like your answer might convince the person, it might not. But I think the I like I think that again, like being able to exp and this is the, the approach I take as a teacher when I get asked questions like this, is I I always make sure that I I don't try and delegitimize any kind of question. I try to have an answer to it. And I try to and I hope that the answer is convincing, but also I don't have an eternal right 
to be agreed with all the time, you know. Um, but I think that 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 yeah, I think that again, this is a a kind of um, as you mentioned, you know, a kind of very overinflated issue that ignores the much broader point of the fact that you know, as you pointed out in your course. You could argue that, um, you know, uh, Toni Morrison was deplatformed <laughs> from your course, that, you know, historically, um, you know, black authors, black academics have been systematically, despite their immense, you know, Du Bois to me, it's like one of the first major sociologists of, Amer of, of the US. It's been a tooth and nail struggle to get him recognized as um, a, um, a central figure of modern sociology. So why is that not seen as a process of deplatforming and an, an exclusion on the basis of identity? But when it happens in a way that is often looks like a student asking, you know, why why are we studying this particular mm. person or whatever? That is read in that in that way. I mean, can I can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Right. Let's <laughs> say, for instance, we get an opportunity for you to interview Niall Ferguson, who is much more on the political right. His views of empire are apologist at best, and we go right. Here is an opportunity for a tête-à-tête -tête, Dahlia and Niall Ferguson. Mm. Would you do it, or would you be worried mm. about? what giving him a platform on Navarra Media might mean, what the reaction might be? I think it's a question, I think about it all the time, and, and it's an unresolved one, because I think on the one hand, this idea that, like, Niall, you know, Niall Ferguson, the idea that I can enter into a conversation, the thing, it would be different if it was on a platform like Navarra Media because of the audience that we're engaging with. The issue with, like, if it was a, when you say a tete-a-tete, we're not tete-a-tete -tete because Niall Ferguson's ideas represent the broad assumptions. Niall Ferguson has the weight of the tabloid media and the media institution and the kind of stories that are told in schools and told in, 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 in media behind him, behind mm. his assumptions. And I think that there is a kind of a, 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 a assuming that if we entered into a conversation that we would be doing it in a way that is truly an equal and free exchange of ideas. It's on. It's an unreasonable. Even thing. if it was here, but, even if it was in this room. Well, that's the thing is, I do think that in Navarra, because of the the audience, it would feel like the assumptions would not be as fixed. But I think broadly, I mean, I do it. You know, I do go onto media and I and I have conversations and I have discussions with people who have like really fundamentally different views. I just think that. I'm always, what I'm trying to always get from a space like that is like, what does winning this conversation look like? And I think what I try to do is to be like, okay, I'm not going to try and do this because I'm trying to ride the coattails of someone more famous than me or get views or something, but actually like, can I do this in a really meaningful way? And that depends on the conversation. I think in a conversation like colonial hit the way that colonial history is taught because I've organized in that space and everything and I come at it from a kind of a position of collective understanding that I could make meaningful interventions there but yeah so like I, I definitely wouldn't rule it out I definitely think that that is something I would possibly do yeah what's your take on the platforming conversation well I think I think generally speaking it's probably quite bad for the left um, because I've now had enough experience of this in legacy media where I I actually hear it mostly from the center Mm. You know, I remember doing it, BBC Any Questions with Ben Bradshaw somewhere in Devon. And he said, I don't know why this chap's on the platform with me. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, I don't know either. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So when people said that to me, I go, because I've got a great ass. <laughs> but no, what was interesting was the audience mm. like almost like started booing him. It was really strange. Mm. And it wasn't because they liked me. And then Jonathan Dimbleby said, well, look, that, that decision is for the BBC to make, not you, Mr. Radshaw. Mm. People start clapping. And I think, you know, there's lots of things that people complain about in this country. And I think one key component to English-British identity is this idea that they like to give people a hearing. Mm. Right. I, I do genuinely believe that. And I think that's to the advantage of progressive and left wing arguments generally. There's caveats, of course. So I think all of a sudden you're presenting people like Ben Bradshaw, this idea of no platform. Actually, no, certain arguments shouldn't be made. We have enough of a challenge as it is. Now, you clearly shouldn't platform Nazis. Right. I'm not I'm not suggesting that. And the question you were asking about Nar Ferguson is a really interesting one. Right. I would personally uh, I think you should interview Nar Ferguson if it was at Navarra, for instance. If it was Niall Ferguson making the exact same arguments with a hundredth of the following, I'd say don't bother, right? Because it's not an intervention into mm. that big conversation. And I don't think his views are so important or interesting that they merit that, that, mm. that audience. And I would, I would agree with that. Equally, I don't think, for instance, we should interview Douglas Murray on Navarra. I think for me, he's a bit too far to the right. But I can see the argument being made. But if then you say, well, we should interview, you know, some fascist grouplet, you know, I'm not going to name names. Mm. And I said, well, no, because you're literally giving them a platform. I don't think that applies mm. to Douglas Murray in so much as the guy has a massive platform already. already. He, he goes, and Joe Rogan or whatever, right? So we're not really contributing to that. And there may be the chance, actually, that you or Dahlia or me interview him and we absolutely skew him. Mm. And actually, that's a win, right? So, I, so I, I think there's definitely a calculation to make. I think certain people obviously just are completely beyond the, you know, beyond the the, the, the parameters of acceptability. But I, I don't think it's that big. And secondly, going back to that Hitchens thing, we talked about the death penalty. And just for people to understand, I don't support the death penalty, okay? I oppose the death penalty. And I made clear why in that interview. I think the fundamental reason is miscarriages of justice can't be overturned, particularly when you have a police force in this country or the US, which is so terrible, so racist, so classist. I just don't think there is any you know, decent exp you know, explanation for its thinking whatsoever. But then, of course, Hitchens came back and said, well, the Nuremberg trials. Do you not think that Goering should have potentially faced capital punishment? Well, of course I do. Or you hear about, you know, some of, how, some of the security Mussolini guards. got his. Well, he did, yeah. Or, you know, some of, the, some of the, you hear some of the appalling stories from Auschwitz. For instance, there was a, a young female guard who used to brutalise the most do the most awful things to the survivors and some of the people that died, you know, at her hand and at the hand of the of the Third Reich, of course she should face the death penalty. You know, the idea that you would have had Nazis in West Germany into the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, acting potentially as, you know, um, um, a, 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 a locus of hope or sort of political aspiration for a, a remnant of the German far right, of course not. So, and I buy that argument, right? So the other, I oppose capital punishment. Well, no, I don't. I think it was absolutely right to kill the people after the Nuremberg trials. What that does in that conversation with Hitchens is it refines your argument. You say, well, no, actually, when, I, when it comes to domestic law in the UK, in the United States, for X, Y, Z reasons, I oppose it. And, and sure, if we went to war tomorrow, and of course you have to maintain, you know, the rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. I understand, for instance, why um, somebody in the Ukraine-Russia war if they're a Russian agent um, inside the Ukrainian civil service, well, they might face capital punishment. It's a war. That happens. That is very different from somebody, you know, dealing drugs in, you know, in North London. And so I think it's, it's good to have those debates. And this is the difference between 
straw manning and steel manning. I think it's very useful to steel man your arguments. If you think something, expose them to the strongest possible counter argument. It can only be good for you. It can only be good for the left. And I, I, I think I think it's getting better, but I think for a long time we forgot that. Well, I mean, I want to give some maybe specific examples of the way in which different marginalised groups have chosen to engage or not engage with the media. So one is, I think that it's undeniable, and I think both of you agree with me, that the climate of hostility towards trans people in this country pursued by the media is insane. Right? It is crazy. Um, the things which journalists are allowat to say from the kind of prurience and explicitness and vulgarity, I think it is very difficult to imagine that being applied to any other minority, mm. right? Particularly the line of questioning pursued by the likes of Kay Burley, like, can a woman have a penis? I mean, I just, mm. I think it is gross. Yeah. And there has been a decision being made by lots of trans people, and in particular trans women who have been the real focus of a lot of this to go, we're not going to engage with mainstream media at all. Um, there's no way that we can win in these spaces. Um, it is too detrimental to my own personal safety and my mental health, and I'm not going to do it. I'm simply not going to do it. And the way in which that's often articulated is that I refuse to debate my existence. The thing is, is that those debates are happening anyway. They are. And so I don't know what you guys think, but You know, I'm not I'm not saying that it's for us as three cisgender people to be like trans people. This is what you should do. But it is an example of going um, for various reasons. We're going to step back from the mainstream media space. We're going to step back from directly engaging with transphobes in televised or mediatized debates. And the debates are still continuing. What do you what do you think of it? I mean, I think that for me. The question What what's really important here is that I don't think that like real power is won in three minute, four minute segments on like interview segments. I think that they have a role. And of course, like there's a certain uh, kind of salience to that. There's a power in that. But ultimately, and I think where a lot of the the choice to withdraw from mainstream media is not a choice to withdraw from action as a mm. whole, I think it's a decision to act and write and engage in ways that feel proactive and, yeah, and, and, and winnable in a meaningful sense. And I think that that's, that's a fair assessment to make. And I think that in that argument, you know, particularly because when we're talking about, you know, I mean, we're just coming off the back of like very terrifying mm. death threats being sent to Shola and to India Willoughby. Um, I think that there is an argument to be made that, but then, you know, on the other hand, you can say, well, in struggles, bodies get like people, like harm is experienced in, in struggle. You know, people- It ain't called the struggle for nothing as Ian Lavery like to say. <laughs> yeah, but I do think that like, it's important to understand that a withdrawal from that particular form of engagement is not necessarily a withdrawal from mm. action completely. And I think that you can make personal decisions on- what form, you know, the struggle has many frontiers and I think it's fine to make, per I don't think it's necessarily an abdication of responsibility to decide that I actually don't think that this is a winnable space. You might change your mind eventually, but, you know, I make the every, when I get me, there are certain media gigs that I turn down, certain media gigs that I say yes to, and the ones that I say yes to are the ones where I feel something is winnable in here, mm. you know? 
but I go through a decision-making process every time. I don't have a kind of like blanket position. Um, but I think that as long as you are engaged in some way, then we can't see it as an abdication of responsibility, you know, and a curation of different spaces and mm. new spaces as well. Yeah, I think I think Dahlia's right. You know, the, the world isn't changed by sort of three-minute snippets on LBC and talk radio. Like it's, I think that's actually almost entirely irrelevant. I think it's background noise, even for the listeners. Even the presenters don't care. Mm. Mm. There is some media which like, in India Willoughby did it, for instance, BBC Question Time. I think that has such a big audience. I think you should probably think twice. Even if you have this general blanket, mm. I'm not going to do the media. And as I've said, I think there's great justification to that. Some bits stand out, right? Um, but obviously that's for, the, for, for them to decide. It was a big lesson for me, actually, was during, during the Jeremy Corbyn years, because I was naive enough to think that the media wanted to actually have a discussion around some things. Is Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitic? Well, I don't think so. Here's why. They didn't, they no. didn't want that conversation. They didn't want the conversation. Um, and I remember even going on to Sky News once, and they sort of misled me as to why I was going on. And then they started showing me my own tweets. And I had to explain them. And actually, they were, they were, there was a substantial... It's my worst nightmare. Inaccuracy about something. <laughs> Nobody watches Sky News anyway. So I feel like, yeah, Thomas Tuchel is a cunt. Yay. <laughs> Nobody was like... And I'm like, from my recesses of my 3 a.m. brain. <laughs> I was so <laughs> confronted with those in the daylight. They were please. recent tweets. There wasn't anything like that. It was like, there were things that I could defend, fortunately. And was, they, they didn't do their job properly. Um, <laughs> like, there's a bunch of stuff in there I can't yeah, do. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, really? And I just said to the guy, I think it was Damar Patterson, I just said, like... Nobody knows who I am. Your audience doesn't know who I am. They don't care about me. Like You're expending resources talking about not even Jeremy Corbyn's tweets, my tweets. Mm. This is basically, it's, it was an information war against a socialist leader of the Labour Party. And I should have just recognised that sooner. And I think we, we generally should have just been like, you know what, we want to talk about policy. We want, we want to talk about the positive stuff, housing crisis, how it can be addressed, climate change. Um, a more progressive refugee policy in this country, public services. Let's just stick to that. Do you know and, what? And I, and I think actually that was a big mistake. And, I, and so I think, I think it's the same with the trans, the trans issue. I know we're talking about people's lives here, but that's how the media mm. would frame it. And I think most people's thoughts on this actually, because there are many trans people in society. You know, not millions, but you're talking, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of people. Everybody will know a trans person throughout the course of their life, generally speaking, particularly particularly now. And I think that shapes people's views on things far more than what they see in the media, personally. Mm. It's one of those personal issues, right? It's a bit like with, with gay marriage. When somebody knows a gay couple and they, they say, well, they're just like me, they're just normal, happy people. Like, it, it's very different to this thing over there that's mm. quite alienating. Mm. So if your, if your strategy is actually, you know, personal interactions, and then on top of that, the power of art, mm. right? You mm, know, if you absolutely. have an outstanding film or novel about, you know, the, a, a trans person's story, look, a billion times more powerful than all it, these clips. It doesn't even have to be good, actually. Mm. And, and, and this is something which I genuinely mean, which is think about the role of Will and Grace in the early 2000s, right? It was suddenly the favourite sitcom in, like, Iowa and Montana and both Dakotas like all these places <laughs> all both, these, Dakotas. both Dakotas um you know all these places where mm. you know it, it was being watched by people in like you know Wyoming like in the very mm. county where Matthew Shepard was brutally murdered mm. and there was something of that like cozy familiarity of like a sitcom mm. which isn't exactly pushing the boundaries of cinema it's in a format that everybody recognizes and feels familiar and sure you know the sorts of identities being portrayed were very very limited mm. and the portrayals of 
gay life, romance and sex mm. were very, very mm. PG. But suddenly it's like, okay, I don't know anyone who's out and gay, but I feel like I know you because you're being beamed into my living room, mm. you know, every Friday at 8 p.m. Mm. or something. So I, I think that you're right to identify not the power of art, but it doesn't all have to be great art, no. right? Like, you know, there's some... It's a contra, actually. Popular art is... <laughs> like, like Will and Grace's art. I mean. mm. Like real normie shit. Yeah. Like real yeah. normie shit. Yeah, and I think, and I guess like, you know, I, I'm interested also to, to hear what you think, Ash, as someone who's on the front lines of this a lot, you know. I, because I think for me, you know, my first interaction with the culture war. I remember it being a thing about cancelling Christmas in the US. That was like when I first heard the term about, you know, like um, that kind of stuff. It wasn't really a thing for me that I really noticed in Britain a lot until I was kind of thrown into the yeah. epicentre of it with Roads Must Fall. It was this kind of baptism of fire where it was like... So can you just give a bit of background on what Roads Must Fall was? Yeah, so Roads Must Fall in Oxford was a campaign that was inspired by a similar uh, campaign in South Africa, um, in UCT, I think. Um, and uh, it was essentially to say that there is a statue of Cecil... There was a statue of Cecil Rhodes outside of UCT. There was a statue of Cecil Rhodes... Um, in uh, Oxford, Cecil Rhodes is, you know, one of the most sort of consequential British co colonialists of, um, of, uh, of, his, of, of his time. And, you know, Rhodesia, which was the name given to Southern Africa, uh, was named after him. So, you know, with, this is a big, also the inventor of engagement rings. Yes. Yes. Because the De Beers, the Diamond is Forever campaign yeah. was basically, so they were like, we've found a way to use basically slave labor yeah, yeah, yeah. to like get this product we need to make it valuable mm. and desired anyway i should have told my wife before that <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and so it was a campaign to kind of remove this statue you know um on the basis of, of his legacy and what he represents and when i started that campaign well i didn't start that campaign when i started getting involved in that campaign I thought it was the most uncontroversial thing in the world. I come, you know, I grew up around black and brown people. It was normal to joke about, you know, how the British stole all of our shit and all of this. Like, it was completely, that was not a controversial... My grandma used to say that the Queen was in the tunnel where Diana died. <laughs> exactly. Like, that was not, I, that was not controversial to me at all. And so we did, the, we were involved in this campaign and... The cover, like the obsessive coverage, like I have never seen anything like it. And it was a media storm that like, obviously I just was not prepared for. Like I had never done media before. None of us had ever done media before. We didn't know what we were, what we were dealing with, but it was about five to six weeks of like wall to wall coverage on the front pages. You know, it was in about 2015. And one thing that I sort of like really came to understand was this idea that the media had absolutely no interest in actually hearing what we had to say. For us, this was a campaign about understanding what the statue represents and what it tells us about the material position of Oxford University, the role it has played historically in you know, knowledge production and colonial knowledge production and in the material laundering of colonial wealth and how it continues to do so. We wanted to talk about the fossil fuel investments that, that Oxford had. We wanted to talk about what Oxford is doing to the local community, you know, the rent. And I bet the, the journalists were like, which statue is next? Lit exactly. And all they wanted to talk about was isn't this about you feeling upset when you walk past a statue? Mm. 
And I'm like, girl, I grew up as a Middle Easterner in the 9-11. You think I'm up, you think I can be touched by how I'm represented or how I feel in public space? Like I've, I don't, I don't know what it means to feel comfortable in public space, but there was this, and it was like every interaction that we had with the journalist was coercing, like it was very coercive into trying to push us to talk about this particular thing of how we feel when we walk past this statue um, and because that was kind of, it was almost like the story was written mm. and we were being cast into characters on that, I, in that story. I definitely want to come and back that's on where this. that's where I'm just like, what's the point here? I definitely you know? want to uh, come back on this to again, like play my role of like a uh, crotchety old reactionary. <laughs> but um, Aaron. Going back to the Cromwell point, again, I do wonder to the extent, <laughs> no, but it's true, Men right? Men only have one thing on their minds <laughs> and it's disgusting. Uh, uh, iconoclasm is a religious term, right? It was where mm. you, you, you know, you, you destroy, um, church icons and we had the reformation in this country and we so we did have again a, a moment of incredible cultural tumult where the old idols quite literally were destroyed for for new ones although of course we remain a christian country so I, again i this aversion to ideas and challenging the status quo and norms clearly exists in many societies but it does feel in some instances also peculiarly british for instance the reaction to all of this compared to what you see in the u.s feels a lot worse here. Now, I'm not in the US. I don't know the story. But when you look at, you know, around Confederate statues, centrist, liberal, progressive people say, yeah, it's probably a good idea to get rid of them. Um, and yet you didn't really find the same consensus around somebody like Colston, mm -hmm. who, who to me is actually quite analogous. I know that we can have, I'm not saying Churchill is the same, because I don't think it is the same. But I think uh, Churchill had many bad sides to him, but I can see the argument for he was prime minister at a moment of national emergency. It's different. Because okay. Colston was 100% slavery. Yeah, he, he, was just a, he was just a slave guy. That, that was his thing, <laughs> right? He was just a slave guy and you want, okay, fine. So I, I, I think that is interesting how Brit, in Britain it's like peculiarly <laughs> strange, you know, and it goes maybe back to that, that, that Puritan thing. And then the exact same journalist, by the way, who say, well, what statue's next? When they're bringing down Soviet-era statues in Ukraine, they go, this is bravery, it's fantastic. Or Saddam in Iraq. Mm. Mm. Look, this is society. Society changes. People's views and values change. Um, regimes change. And statues go up and down all the time, okay? In mm. Oxford, it was being done in a very peaceful, uh, oh, Colston wasn't particularly law-abiding way. but yeah. It but was sick, though. It, it, yeah, it was, it was sick. Yeah. In a very sort of, in a very democratic <laughs> way. I mean, if you're going to get rid of statues, this is probably the ideal way to do it. Mm. And even that infuriated them. Mm. And, and I just feel, it's very strange. And you look at Ukraine, some of the statues they're bringing down are Soviet-era statues, anti-Nazi statues. But look, it's their country. They can do what they like. If, if a mass of people want to get rid of certain objects in public space, which elevates certain ideas and people and values, fine. It's that, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to agree with them. And it's the same with the Royals Must Fall thing. The strangest response I had to all of this was, again, interviewing Peter Hitchens. And I said, what do you think about the statues? It was a terribly ugly statue. <laughs> I can't stand it. I go, well, did you think it should go? He goes, I don't really care. And I go, well, what's the, what, why should it stay? He goes, well, I don't really like the people asking for it to go. I, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the point. most honest answer. That was that's the point. That was the, and I was like, you're, you, you, you're obviously a thoughtful person. But about this, it's just pure. No, but I think that's honesty. Yeah. That is honesty. I think that's that honesty. Whereas mm. everyone else will come up with a hundred different reasons for mm. why it's defensible to keep up a statue of a slaver or a genocidaire mm. or whatever else. Whereas Peter Hitchens goes, they're my opponents and I don't like them. And you mm. go, all right, well, there yeah, you go. Yeah. There you go. That's all there is to it. I mean, I want to come back to something you mentioned, which was the media were pushing you mm. into this direction of going, how do you feel when you walk past the statue? And I totally 100% believe mm. you when you're like, it did not make me feel anything because mm. I have had worse experiences. 
But something which I've definitely noticed, and this has been borne out by interactions I've had in the classroom, in activist spaces and online, Mm. is that there is this nebulous idea of harm Mm. and harm coming from ideas and language, Mm. which is experienced by people who are marginalized. Now, one way in which people express this notion of harm is through the idea of the microaggression. And I I was trying to also be self-critical in this and go, how have my ideas changed around this? Because I remember when... Me and Aaron first met, Um, I was 18 and uh, he was doing a PhD and I was at UCL. It was impossible to talk about race at that time. I remember once trying to, at an occupied space, go, oh, can we have a meeting just for people of colour? And it like started so much drama, it was unreal. So there was this one guy like in a cravat saying to me that I was using race it should be hermeneutic, but I was using it as an ontology or maybe it was an ontology and I was using it as a hermeneutic. These words, which I didn't understand, Mm. but it was just so much hostility. I was like, what the fuck? And actually when you had that kind of emergence of a language around microaggression and a description of how it felt to be in those spaces, at first I was like, amazing. You've spoken to my experience. You've cracked it. Um, and, And now actually I've almost gone back to going... I don't care anymore. I don't really care about my own comfort. Mm. And I don't I don't care about, you know, the word microaggression has the word micro in it for a reason. Mm. Like I can survive this. And I think that there's almost this definition of harm. It inherently prioritizes the experiences of middle and upper class people of color who are in elite spaces because it obscures the fact that the most direct harm being done to people of color and this isn't just people of color but this is just the minority that I happen to belong to um is happening to working class people of color right mm. it wasn't rich people being caught up in the windrush crisis if you're a rich person and you're being stopped and searched unlawfully you will have some legal recourse mm. because you can afford it um and I, and I think that this very loosey-goosey definition of harm is a way of obscuring the relationship between class and race. Can I say a few things? Go for it. About microaggression. You know, I, I, I actually had an... I almost had a fight like a couple of weeks ago because I was walking my dog, just wearing a tracksuit, unshaven, um, and the dog did a shit in the park. <laughs> All right? and, I'm, and I'm getting out my bag to pick it up and this old old dude I can see him tutting and I said what the fuck's your problem and I knew he was tutting because of how I looked I knew it now I can't prove it so this idea that like microaggressions are only something in the academy and by mm. the way white white male men have microaggressions against each other oh yeah like these are th- like the, the idea that they don't exist that there's a tiny thing realistically he's just tutting at me like not picking up my dog shit within five seconds it's a tiny thing. I shouldn't care about it, but I'm inferring a much broader mm. issue that happens all the time to everyone. So they do that microaggressions don't exist. And I, of course, I shouldn't have reacted like that. Of course, it's stupid. But at the same time, maybe I was, maybe my analysis was correct. So that's the first thing. Then the second thing, when you when you look at what's happening to people of people of colour in the US, the UK, I mean, obviously I can only talk with a bit of authority about the UK. This this is so low down on the list of priorities. We had a story recently on Navarra Media where you have an eviction company basically mm. dressing up as the police to illegally evict people, right? Who do you think they're evicting? Like, these are people who don't really know their rights. They don't necessarily know the difference between law enforcement and bailiffs. Like, 
it's overwhelmingly immigrants and it's people of color in, mm. in major cities, overwhelmingly. Like, this isn't microaggression. This is a private militia trying to remove you and your children from your home. Now, it's not to minimize the microaggression stuff. Like I just said, I literally am, I, I'm not guilty of it myself, but I've participated in that too. So yeah, you feel the emotion yeah. and you react to it. So I, I, think that, I think that context is really, really important. Uh, but it's, if we're trying to talk to the class mm. and, and specifically working class people of color, it, it does feel very low down. And and I think legacy media amplifies it for a reason, precisely because they don't want to talk about stuff like illegal evictions. I'm going to do a Dr. Bastani and make a wild historical comparison. Please. Right? <laughs> when you look at how the Bolsheviks operated or how the Maoists operated, they had something kind of in common. Or the Zapatistas, right? Is that you've got um, urban intellectuals very often literally moving to the countryside to organize amongst the class, right? And that's actually how some of the most successful revolutions in history have happened. There was, of course, working class self-organization, peasant self-organization, but you had this really distinct thing of urban intellectuals going to work amongst the class and it fucking worked, all right? Bolsheviks won, the Maoists won. What they didn't do is go, it's actually all about me. And it's actually all about my feelings. And that, I think, is the difference, is the fascination with the self and one's own trauma. It's not going, oh, elites don't have a role in the struggle, because actually history tells us that they do. It's going, elites come to the struggle and go, my pain, my experience, me, my trauma. And that, for me, is the bit which I think is... um, hamstringing the possibility of liberation movements. I don't think it's why we're not winning. I think it's the adaptations amongst capital, the responsiveness of elites, and also the co-option of uh, certain forms of liberal identity politics. But I think that it is the focus on the self. And ultimately, ultimately, like, I have to ask myself again and again, like, did Lenin practice self-care? Probably not. Didn't the Tsar kill his brother? Which one? (laughs) Lenin's, well, Tsar Nicholas, I, I presume, killed... Oh, Lenin's brother. Sorry, yeah. I thought you said the Tsar killed his own brother, and I was like, I didn't... That didn't come up in Anastasia. That's pretty, that's pretty traumatic, right? Yeah. Or like the Shah, I think Ayatollah Khomeini, I think he either killed... The Shah's father killed Khomeini's father, so it's like mm. Marvel Universe, like, and he flies back, Air France gets rid of the fucker. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, th- these people have incredible pain in their lives, yet they live nationally successful... You know, overthrowing a power, you know, the Iranian revolution didn't quite work out, right? you know, but mm. you know, Russian revolution neither. But um, you're absolutely right. I think, but do you think that's, um, do you think that's a recent thing? Or do you think there were revolutionaries in the early 20th century, 19th century who were just like that? It's just they failed. Well, Don't know. I mean, the idea of, of care for oneself and one's community is a key part of revolutionary organizing because it's where you reproduce you know care is the space where you reproduce yourself to enter struggle right and that's the key the problem is that the entering of struggle has kind of left the building um, I think that's <laughs> the problem um but I think in terms of okay so there's like loads of things that came up um just then so I think first of all um the kind of microaggression discourse like that emerged out of a particular way of talking about the different scales in which power operate, right? And it is absolutely true that scale, that power operates in part on that micro level, on the way that people operate in a confined Mm. particular space. And, you know, when I have been in, you know, particular spaces, there is this sense that there is like 
these like micro processes of like discipline and all of this. But also the key thing here is like the macro aggression of like the job center fucking existing or prisons existing. And I think that there has been, because of for so many different reasons, namely I, I primarily I think the the state's kind of uh, reaction to a lot of the revolutionary movements of the 60s and 70s and the very sophisticated tools that the state has developed to break up organizing, that it feels like the macro is like, it is, is not, we don't have the organizational forms to take on the macro. And so in lieu of that power, there's a sense of like, okay, but I can tell someone how to engage with me in this space. So let me just, and I think it's like that absence of the broader ability the, the organizational form needed to tackle that kind of macro power is kind of, it, it feels very difficult and thorny. That doesn't mean that we don't throw ourselves into trying to build it. And I don't think that just focusing on individual senses of comfort, and particularly it comes with this kind of class erasure. You know, when we talk about the Combahee River Collective and we talk about this idea of, you know, self-determined organizing and identity-based organizing, the key thing is that they, you know, they said, we don't believe that with the fall of capitalism will also necessarily come the fall of racism. The precursor mm. was the idea yeah. that we're all here to end mm. capitalism, right? That was the precursing assumption. Mm. But the point was, is that like, we don't, we're not, by not taking into account race and gender politics, we're not really understanding how working class, the working class is mm. constituted. And I think mm. that that's increasingly where my politics is going, is that I'm caring less and less about my own identity, um, particularly as also like my class status is elevated, right? It's not the case that I'm at the bottom of the labor market. Yeah. You know, like no, the Combahee yeah. River Collective was talking about yeah. black women being at the bottom of the labor market. Mm. Me as a, you know, university educated woman who works in the media, I'm not at the bottom mm. of the labor market. So why don't we talk less about identity and more about interest and the potential for shaping shared ones? And that's why at that time I was talking about the Panthers, which is the Panthers and their kind of intellectual canon if we want to go back to that mm. word a lot of it comes from maoism a lot of their focus on the party forms coming mm. from china mm. you then have also the work being done by the rainbow coalition and there's just some really interesting material from that time um one is also the use of uh panthers being being used and adopted by other groups you had the white panthers you had the yellow panthers and you also actually had I think a real um, strategic orientation away from some of the matters of language and symbolism that we've been discussing. So one example is the Young Patriots organization who were white, poor Southerners. And the Panthers decided it was strategically important to work with them. Mm. Now their, their symbol at the time was the Confederate flag, right? Mm. It was literally the flag of slavery. And in the end, it wasn't because of pressure from the Black Panthers to get rid of it that they did. It was out of respect. And it was out mm. of the learning that came from doing. And mm. that for me is maybe when you talk about the conditions for solidarity, mm. I go, actually, solidarity needs no conditions. But mm. what solidarity does is that it allows that learning and that change to take place. Start with doing. Mm. Start with yeah. doing the damn thing. And yeah. then the rest will and come. And the, the doing is, and that's the point, I think, is that the doing 
doesn't happen on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but also, let's not act like organizing spaces are these beautiful kumbaya mm. spaces where, like, we all just, like, come together. They're, they can be brutal. Like, Ooh, they yeah. can be you're burnt out, you're overworked, you're like, you, it, it, it can be brutal. But I think what where I kind of like struggle, and I do agree that like solidarity is unconditional and innocence is not a prerequisite for solidarity. But I do think that like when we're talking about organizing movements, being engaged in these kind of like struggles, for me, what I want to, what I think is really important was when we talk about the barriers to solidarity, I think there is an overfocus on looking at the people who claim or name their identity as the barriers to that solidarity. As in, you know, we all, we had this kind of like unified, you know, class first movement that was kind of mm. like, we were all unified and then a few black and brown people came yeah, along yeah, yeah. and ruined it all. And it's like, bro, like the union movement in this country has a history of being incredibly pro-borders, of being incredibly Doctors diverse. For Enoch. Yeah, of being incredibly devi divisive of the working class. The thing is, is they don't have to come in and say, as a white person, mm. They don't have to say it. It's a given. It's the new, it's the the core, just because they don't have to name it and like make it legible because it's already embedded in the space that like it doesn't become, it doesn't become seen as a form of identity politics, but I've absolutely seen in organizing spaces, you know, and this is where like representation has its severe limitations where, you know, I've been in organizing movements that have been multiracial organizing movements where, you know, like white men are absolutely more than happy to like put me on a panel or like have me in a picture or like whatever. But when it comes to like the serious organizing, the backroom channels, the factional organizing, the WhatsApp groups where all of the real strategy is done, you think they have a damn interest what I have to say? No. And so when we're talking, so are they expressing solidarity towards me? Are they create helping to create those bonds of mutual trust towards me and obviously like you say you know this isn't about me I'm occupy very different classes I'm talking about a very different kind of time in my life but I think that that is often the experience and it's like when we talk about who is a threat to unity or who is a who is a a um a a, a barrier to unity I think overall when we're talking about who holds comparative power in particularly like our union movements and things like that who holds the levers of power in our union institutions it's not like I think we only tend to name it when it's black and brown people. I mean, what what do you, you make know? of that, Aaron? Because there has been um, multiple stories coming out from the GMB and the TSSA of endemic misogyny and sexism yeah. in the trade unions, and the fact that it is so dominated by men, very often dominated by white men, that that has had an impact on the internal culture of the trade union movement. How do you balance the need for the mass organization of labor against capital and also the way in which our in which the conditions of our presently existing society play out within that movement? Yeah, I mean we we broke the GMB story um and then the TSSA story. Just so for people who are watching or listening, these are two trade unions, GMB is significantly larger, um, where both the general secretaries Effectively, the CEO of the trade union, sorry to use that kind of language, but it's somewhat analogous, um, was embroiled in you know a range of stuff. In regards to the GMB, the former general secretary was 
allegedly involved in taking large quantities of drugs. There was a casting couch, quote unquote, culture at um, at the GMB. And I think this is inherently linked to the fact that these are failing organizations. Now, the GMB does great work, by the way, um, amongst particularly private sector workers. There's great work. I'm not denigrating that in the slightest. But imagine how much more powerful they would be if they weren't like that. Imagine how much more powerful they would be if you didn't have somebody at the top behaving like that, but they're actually serious about getting out there and growing as an organization. In a way, like a business, sorry to say it, right? What you know, If the GMB, and it's very easy for me to sit here, and I'm sure if somebody from there watches this, they go, that's why he doesn't know what he's talking about. Double their membership in five years. Why not? The NEU's just added 60,000 members, I think, in the last few months, the, the teaching union. Given the cost of living crisis, all of these organizations should be asking themselves, if I'm not seeing that kind of growth, why not? And it's because they're organizations which were part of a historic defeat in this country after the 1980s, and they never recovered from it. And recovery, what does it look like? It involves no longer having people like this at the top behaving in these ways. And it's not, it's not trying to be woke or trying to win brownie points on social media. 50% of the population is women. It's not that hard, right, to work out. So I, I think it's a big, big part of, of, of political failure on their, on their part. Then in addition to that, just to go over some points, you know, I think one of the big mistakes the left made in the 2010s, there's a great quote made by um, Deleuze to Foucault. Uh, maybe it was the other way around. <laughs> no, and he said, um, Marx taught, taught us the meaning of exploitation. You taught it, us what it was to understand power. Mm. And I think there's something to that, right? We understand economic exploitation with Marxism, and then we understand this idea of, of power through microaggressions, although Foucault isn't just about that. Mm-mm. And that's a unique, I think, uniquely 20th century discovery, right? That power operates through a number of matrices and actually runs right through all of us. And we can all do bad stuff for quite structural reasons mm. to do with power. So I think it's a useful insight. But then I think the left in the 2010s, but particularly, well, really the post-Cold War left, but I think the left in the 2010s, it's notable precisely because there's an economic downturn. There should be a massive scaling of the left. There was to some extent, Sanders, Corbyn, and so on. But a big part of the left was still obsessed with the kind of Foucauldian point and forgot the Marxist one. Mm. So like you're talking about power structures and microaggressions, but you're not talking about quite elementary things like exploitation. And yeah, this, this, this woman in the morning yeah. used to get a, a bus for two and a half hours to mm-hmm. go to work on a minimum wage job. Mm. That's kind of more important. It's mm. focusing on what's close rather than what's strategic. Yeah. So mm. if what's close to me is my experience in the seminar room or my experience mm. in this particular activist space or my experience mm. in human resources, mm. then that becomes the yeah. focus of my political energy, um, yeah. not what is necessarily and is, strategic. And this is where, you know, like to me, like Lola Olufemi's work on imagination, like the, the imagine imagining otherwise is so like important because it's like so long as we focus on what feels immediately pragmatically mm. possible or within our control at this moment and that we can we are closing off the imagination of what could be the unlocked abundance of liberation and it's like we do ourselves a disservice right and i think that that reviving and you know to an extent when corbynism was was sort of like the main, the vehicle that a lot of people were using, you know, by nature of an electoral Mm. system, you have to put hems in on that imagination because you've got to translate things into policy, right? Mm. That is really, you know, a policy that can be actioned in, you know, one nation state kind of thing. But in a sense, like, 
that 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 returning to the imagination is like a really and this is where you know obviously art and mm. things like this and the allowance of contradiction the allowance of uncertainty to be like a, a an exciting space not just a scary space becomes like excite like really important in our politics you know well it's like that point you were making earlier about social media and personalization so the fact that we have these personalized feeds which you know, mm. can curtail our imaginations. But it also then encourages us to do what's close rather than what's strategic and to turn away from the imagination because mm. you have to react to what's there. Oh, God, yeah. Right? It is an economy of reaction. And if you're not reacting on Twitter, who are you? You're mm. nobody, mm. right? Or your silence is deafening. Your silence is <laughs> deafening. Oh, that's my favourite one. I'm just like, I just don't want to talk. Yeah. What were you going to say? It was interesting for me. What was really interesting, I have to say, was that it really pressed home something I've been thinking about since Harry and the release of his book, This Man's Trash. When you say Harry, you're on first name terms Prince with Harry. Prince Harry. <laughs> Prince Harry. The brother to the future king of the United Kingdom and his crown territories. Um, because I thought, wow, in a cultural sense, we really are becoming the 51st state, right? And I, I mean this in a very, this is not like a throwaway comment. People from the United States are saying that you in the United Kingdom, when this thing has happened, can't use these words, as if we were members of the same political, social community, which is, and that's often been boundaried by nation states, right? Now, agree or disagree, wherever you fall on that conversation, that wasn't possible 20, 25 years ago. It wasn't mm. possible. Just like Prince Harry, with his book being so successful, biggest selling nonfiction book in history, was not possible 20, 25 years ago mm. because he's got the BBC and the tabloid press against him. That would have killed him 25 years ago. But guess what? He's got Netflix and Spotify. Fuck you, right? <laughs> that that monsters the BBC and the Daily Mail in the 21st century. And I think, you know, we're moving away from a distinctly British public sphere. Again, like it or not, you know, there are very many bad aspects to that. I think the majority of them are actually quite negative. Um, we're moving towards an, sort of an Anglophone hybrid cultural media sphere, we, we, I think that's quite obvious now, where, you know, people under 30 are more likely to get their news from, or even under 40 really, from Facebook, TikTok, than they are from the BBC. You know, they're more likely to get it from an American influencer than they are from, you know, the six o'clock news. And, and I think for me, this was like a snapshot of that. It, is, it, is, it isn't usual for people in a bigger country to say to people in a smaller country, when you share the same language, don't use those words. It generally isn't a, a thing because why would they care? Like it's a smaller place. But of course, with social media, you have this shared space where it's it's basically flattened as the same thing, right? You might as well it might as well be an American in the same state saying it. And that was the response that was elicited. So that's the first point. It really showed to me the the flattening of an Anglophone sort of cultural media sphere. I think there is a, a genuine possibility that we become really an appendage of the United States just because of changing media consumption habits. Um, and that has some really good things to it, right? I'm not saying it's all bad. I find it genuinely funny watching right-wing journalists flip out at the fact that the New York Times now publishes <laughs> British writers and they find a British audience in a way that, again, wasn't possible 20 years ago. The New York Times now, I think, um, you know, it's getting more minutes not, not hits, but more minutes in the UK than like certain legacy UK outlets. I can't remember which particular sites, but like The Express, mm. I think the MYT is above it in terms of actual minutes spent by UK nationals in the UK. So that wasn't happening 25, 25 years ago. If you want to know what the New York Times thought, you had to go and buy a paper in London the day after publication. But what's so interesting about this is that I do think it's more culturally influential for 
the left, by which I mean left of centre, um, you know, including like, you know, liberals and centrists and blah, 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 than it is for the right. And I'll give you a concrete example of this because it happened just the weekend that's gone, is the Turning Point UK slash GB News protest outside the pub in South London because there was a all ages drag brunch mm. being hosted there. And at their most populous, the anti-drag protesters managed about 30 individuals and most of them had cameras. They were kind of there for content. Mm. And you had kind of fluctuating between 300 and 1,000 um, I don't want to say pro-drag protesters, <laughs> but like anti-anti-drag protesters. And what the far right in the UK have been trying to do is take what has been an astonishingly successful moral panic from the United States, which is mm. monstering uh, gay and gender non-conforming and mm. trans people as paedophiles and just import it one for one over here. Mm. And before you had this attempted protest, we should say, outside this pub, you had some far-right protesters try mm. at a drag queen story hour. Now, if you were the drag queen in question, that must have been very, very frightening. And I'm not trying mm. to downplay the experience of the intimidation at all. But when you compare it to hundreds and sometimes thousands of proud boys descending on a city mm. armed with guns and hammers, when mm. you think about the way in which it's been picked up by right-wing legislators at both the state and congressional level, mm. when you think about the amount of airtime it's getting on something like Tucker Carlson, which is the most news program in the United States, totally different. So I think that there is a a influence culturally from the American left and the way in which racial politics are playing out in America on the British left in a way that the right aren't quite making it happen Can for I themselves. Can I quickly respond to that? Because I wouldn't even say it's the left. Mm. I'd say it's US liberals. And I don't mean that in like a denigratory way. Like, like I said, the, new, the sort of younger millennial execs at Netflix or Spotify mm. and the things they believe in and their values and so on have an extraordinary impact on this country's culture. Mm. Extraordinary. Um, and it's and it, uh, not necessarily left-wing. I think the, 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 the guiding star here is social liberalism. No problem with that, right? I, was, I am a social liberal. Um, it's the economic liberalism I'm not a fan of, but it's important to say that they're not talking about that. So I think the thing that's really driving it is social liberalism by liberals. And, you know, they, they're called coastal elites by people like Tucker Carlson. It's broadly correct, right? You know, that those are the people that drive this kind of content. And in terms of what you were saying with the, the right, I suppose confirming the hypothesis is the fact that the far right in this country now take their lead mm. from the US, right? The point is it's not popular, a few, a few initial thoughts on that. Firstly, I'd imagine the audience of GB News, which primetime viewing overtook Sky in December, they're both quite small, right, compared to the BBC, is, is more economically left-wing than Fox News, I'd imagine. I'm sure very racist or bigoted mm. or whatever, but I think, and on social issues, quite conservative, but I'd be intrigued on their economic views. I'd be intrigued because we know that older Brits, actually, when it comes to things like public ownership... Commission that poll with Radford and Wilton, my dear. Let's you. do it. So I, th I think that's one big difference between here and the US. And then secondly, obviously, the state of the media. So I think in this country, I think... Well, I wrote a piece about it just this week. In this country, broadcast media is basically new labour, right? Mm. Which, you know, it's good if you want to bash the Tories. When you've got a leader like Jeremy Corbyn, it means that both the press and the broadcast media are going after the Labour leader, mourn the bloody government, mm. which is what we had between 2015 and 2019. But what it also does mean is you inoculate the body politic from this kind of stuff a bit better. Like you said, Tucker Carlson, Fox News is the biggest broadcast 
news mm. show in the United mm. States. We don't have that here. But do we, I mean, is that a specific thing to Britain? I mean, America is a global empire. It's it's an imperial force and cultural imperialism is such a huge part of it. Like I do think that US discourse does shape things around, you know, it has that kind of like power uh, around the world. And I think that there are particularity, you know, when you think about the transphobia mm. um, uh, example that you use, one, what what's specific about here is the role of feminism mm. in, or feminism, you know, particular is... Well, centrist. Centrist, feminist, like white feminist, whatever you want to call them. Um, the role of this like feminist language in this emerging fascism against trans people, I feel like that's not as salient in the US. And I've always tried to like figure out, I have my own theories, but like, why is this, why is British feminism, like why does it have this history of transphobia that like US feminism, even white feminism doesn't have as much in that the the moral panic around trans people in the US is very squarely coming from the evangelical right. Mm. I don't see as much of a, a proactive role by, you know, middle-class white feminists. I think it's because um, white, like American, US feminism, feminists have had to engage more substance, substantively with black feminism so than mm. we have here. And this whole idea of like womanhood, women's safety, and all this being deployed in ways that are incredibly like oppressive and gnarly, um, and this idea of like woman as not a stable category, but actually kind of like gender as a as a very as that there are, that that people have very contested access to this category of woman, mm. and that confers a kind of power. We haven't engaged not because there haven't been black feminist movements here, but because there hasn't been those black feminist movements have been erased from history. Yeah, they've so been much. so sidelined. Yeah, I mean, like the heart of race went out of print for thirty years. That you know, in 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 America, in the US, you have like more a more prevalent more prevalent like black printing presses. You have like black publishers. You have more black archive. There's so many reasons why that might be the case, and like, so there is still like a kind of specificity mm. here that you know can't be kind of flattened in that way. And like for me, the example in the transphobia one is that the the, the complicity of a particular kind of feminist language. Mm. Can you know. I can I add to this a bit? Because mm. I think you're totally correct. And I think there are some other really important differences as well. One is, is that in the UK, ironically, because we don't actually have a formal separation between church and state, we have overall a much more secular culture. Mm. So the strength and the political strength of the evangelical mm. right, particularly from, you know, uh, Nixon and Reagan onwards, mm. means that you've got this kind of direct connection between religion and the biggest right wing party. Yeah. Right? It's huge. Mm -hmm. um, I th also think that there is a difference. And this is why it's being led by men in the US and women mm. in the UK. Um, is that the UK moved faster in incorporating women into its elite political and media class, I think, right? I think that the the UK moved faster. We had a, you know, they're still waiting for a female mm. president, but, you know, we've had Thatcher, mm. uh, trust. May and tr yeah. it, Trust, girl bossing yeah. her way into oblivion. Finally, representation. <laughs> I, I was like, incompetent women at yeah, the top. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm her. 
Just not turning up for work? <laughs> no, I was, I was like, slay um, the economy. Um, but yeah, so we did all those things. And also I think when you look at the composition of um, less so in the lobby, but mm. you do have you do have some, you know, obviously very senior uh, female journalists within the lobby. Um, but in terms of political columnists, not just lifestyle mm. columnists, but political columnists, um, more women. Um, and these are the women who were, as Aaron describes, kind of like, you know, not much to divide them on the spectrum between Tony Blair and David Cameron, mm. who have been most threatened in terms of loss of status when it comes to the rise of a more intersectional feminism, which younger people are more mm. au fait with and in favor of. Right. So when this younger generation comes along and goes, look, I know that you're a woman, but you're also like the daughter of a baron or mm. you are exceptionally wealthy mm. and your experience doesn't have anything to do with the majority of women and you're white right and you're straight mm. and you're cisgender and actually here are all these voices and perspectives which have been shunted to the sidelines and because of social media mm. because of the rise of digital media we don't have to take it anymore these are the women who are most threatened by that mm. loss of status mm. and i think because of um you know the, the uk is a deeply racist society but it has become socially unacceptable to articulate that racism explicitly you have mm. to code it you have to dress it up you know I almost feel sad for trans women. It's like, oh, you're really taking the bullet that was meant for us. <laughs> like, you know, it's you know, these columnists at the Times or the Observer, they can't say what they want to say, which is it's these, mm. you know, noisy and disruptive black and brown women. And there is a, you know, more marginalized, mm. you know, socially excluded group of people that I can pick on. Yeah. That's why they've done it. Whereas in yeah. the States, it's all about the restoration of male power and male status mm. and protecting your family and protecting yeah. your children and being armed and being a good dad. Yeah. You know, yeah. women kind of have nothing to do yeah. with it. And this is where it's like, again, we come back to that question of, of ego, where it's like, if you are truly invested in a radical and liberation politics, which these people aren't obviously and I don't even think they really necessarily claim to be you kind of have to not lose your mind at the idea of status your status being threatened you know you have to be able to think in a collective and operate in a collective way the issue with that is that everyone's got rent to pay I mean actually that's a lie not all of these people oh, have let rent me to tell pay. you these columnists at the yeah, times do not, not have rent, rent to pay yeah yeah but like there is this thing of like you know when it comes to like oh should people lose their jobs over things and it's like you know I don't I don't really like as a kind of from a union kind of perspective I'm like I don't really want to see anyone lose their job necessarily and if we're talk not talking about the media sphere if we're talking which is a kind of different kind of job and wields a different kind of power but when we're talking in other contexts mm. this is kind of like okay well where's the line between like holding accountable and like taking food off people's plates you know well, Tara you mentioned the word ego mm. so let's have a look at a clip from Oscar contender Tar, which <laughs> I think is a really amazing example of ego and anxieties around loss of status in action Max why not a Kyrier you know like uh, something like Box Mass and B minor <laughs> I'm not really into Bach you're not into Bach. Mm -hmm. Oh, Max. Have you read the Schweitzer book? No. Well, you should. It's an important text. Antonia Brico thought so. So much so that she shipped herself to equatorial Africa and canoed up the Congo River to track Schweitzer down and ask him to teach her what he knew about Bach. 
I mean, somewhere I've got a picture of her in a, in a, in a pith helmet. I mean, have you, have you ever played or, or conducted Bach? Honestly, as a BIPOC, pangender person, I would say Bach's misogynistic life makes it kind of impossible for me to take his music seriously. Come on. What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, didn't he sire like 20 kids? Yes, that's documented. Along with a considerable amount of music. But I'm sorry, I'm, I'm unclear as to what his prodigious skills in the marital bed have to do with B minor. Okay, so just between us girls, <laughs> um, what did you think about the Juilliard scene in Tar? So I haven't seen the whole film, um, mm. which having seen that scene, I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to get on this because Kate Blanchett is a vision. Um, I think that she really made me into the idea of like a female Weinstein. I'd be like, yeah. I co-sign <laughs> women's rights and also women's wrongs, <laughs> literally. And I like, I mean, that's that is my feminism. <laughs> um, that and also get women out of the workplace. <laughs> Not interested. Um, yeah, I think, but I do think that that scene. I think the the speech highlighted and brought to the fore a lot of the contradictions and kind of like it was certainly like provocative. I do think that the student character was written kind of very thinly when you consider the texture and the weight and the 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 fact that the Kate Blanchett character was like allowed to kind of sit in contradiction but then that student was kind of seen as just like a kind of plot device to just try to try and kind of give something for Kate Blanchett to then respond to and I don't think that that is a fair representation of the conversation that's taking place. I think it's a representation of the conversation that's taken place in the minds of people who haven't actually mm. had that conversation, particularly not in a in an in a classroom setting. Um, but what I was thinking about about it as well, like watching it as a as a, someone who teaches, was she's not being a good teacher. Yeah. 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 You yeah. know? Like at the end of the day, like there's when you are teaching students are going to ask you things that will char with, you know, your own perspective of what you're teaching. And part of the discipline of being a good educator is to engage with it in good faith and to not resort to things like, you know, humiliation and all of this, but to engage with it passionately for sure, but also in a way that is, you know, humanizing and kind of honest and engaged and that's what I was thinking is like yeah she, she's not that wasn't a good example of teaching Aaron to me she's getting fired <laughs> I haven't even watched the whole film I've not watched I've just watched that clip she's she's done I was watching this I was like what the hell is this woman thinking um I, I think Dahlia's right I, I think everything Dahlia just said is true although I would add um there are moments, it's kind of interesting, it's kind of like um, a cardiogram, right? She goes up and you think, oh, this is a bit much, she's being a bit harsh. But then she says, but he has a point in the canon, we decide. So, and I was like, okay, she's, mm. so she is engaging with some of his, his, his feedback. And I would also say that, you know, they're not discussing any subject. They're talking about conducting music. Mm. And a conductor is meant to be humble. A conductor is meant to bring out the best in others and isn't meant to be the centre of attention. So it's kind of unique in terms of like a... An allegory of teaching, right? So it's not like if you were teaching English or mathematics or and somebody had something of a misgiving around the the, the, the content, 
I'd agree with Dahlia, but the very nature of being a conductor is that you kind of repress your ego. I mean, that's the irony, right? Which is like, Kate Blanchett's character is so motivated by ego, and that's why she can't help but humiliate the student. And that was the thing which really struck me watching it, which is it reminded me of some interactions I have had with my students where they're so interested in questions of identity and representation that the question is almost, should you be teaching this thing at all rather than what do you think about it? How do we engage with it? How do you reshape the canon, decide what's in it or change the way in which you're reading it? Um, and it reminded me of all those things. And I did think that the things that she was saying about the need to engage with Mala or Bach was right. But just because she was right didn't make her a good teacher. And she was still wrong in the sense of seeing the seminar space as a stage for her own ego. Mm. I mean, that's the big irony, is that mm. she's kind of castigating the student for a kind of egoism by uh, focusing on, you know, being a BIPOC pangender individual. But her ego is just like a runaway train powering the scene. But shouldn't teachers be egotistic if they're talented and they've got something mm. to teach their pupils? Like if you go to a, a top university and you're, you're going to seminars or lectures with a world-class academic, part of that package is the ego, right? I mean, I'm not saying you're going to enjoy it or like it, but you think this person is the world's leading expert in international human rights law. Okay, they have an ego. That's life. Or am I being too generous? What do you think? I mean, my narcissism is nothing to do with this conversation. <laughs> yeah, Talia is like, <laughs> do you not sap me? Well, <laughs> I don't really, I mean, it depends what you're teaching, right? You know, the things that I teach, you know, I teach on a load of different things, but I tend to teach on things that people feel like shapes their personal experience to an extent. You know, when you're teaching like a class on geographies of race, which is like the last thing that I taught, you are... That is something that you can't really separate from. People experience it. We're living in the geographies of race, right? And so what I try and do in, in those kind of settings is I try to be quite open and quite kind of like engaging with people, what people are bringing into the classroom, you know, from the world in which they come. What I do at the beginning is I try to set some ground rules and I try to set some ground rules. Of How saying, does that go? It goes, I mean, it really goes fine. The two main ground rules I set is like the core assumption of this class is that race and racialization shapes the modern world in different ways. If you don't agree with that basic assumption, this cl this classroom isn't, mm -hmm. is going to be frustrating to you. And it's not, that is a conversation for a different classroom. So that's the one assumption that we're all going to kind of like build on. And then the other thing I, I also say is, this isn't a therapeutic space. This is an <laughs> academic space. And so there is a, a sense of we are trying to engage with, yes, topics that can bring out like, and you can have sort of quite uncomfortable conflicts and stuff, but fundamentally we are trying to engage with race and racialization as an academic subject. Working out kind of like personal trauma is something you shouldn't do in a room with a bunch of people you just met. That's something you do with people that you trust and have friends, and, you know, who are your friends, who are your, your therapist or whatever. Um, or in different kinds of spaces. And in my experience, students have been pretty receptive to that. And obviously you can't draw these really strong boundaries around like what is academic and what's personal. You know, that that is always going to be blurred. But I try, I try to kind of say, you know, this is what we're kind of trying to do. And in my experience, that works quite well. But because people are coming from, you know, when I teach, um, particularly students come from, coming from other countries, they have very different conceptions and ideas and contributions on the question of race that 
I'm genuinely not aware of and mm. that that brings something into the classroom that you should make space for, I think, as an educator. But I don't know much about conducting, so I can't really speak to that. But like, I mean, I know a lot I about, do. I know a lot about ego. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. I mean just like to kind of return to this question of ego. And I think you raise a really good point mm. about allowing yourself as an educator to learn from your students because they're going to bring things that you don't know. You don't have a monopoly on knowledge. But my third year of doing English literature at UCL, my tutor, so that meant you got one-on-one -on -one time with them every two weeks. They graded your essays. Um, my tutor was the head of department who was uh, John Mullen. And he was kind of like a little bit of a literary world celebrity. He was always on the culture show. And his lectures were really funny in some ways and frustrating in others. And the funny thing about them was that they were kind of a stage for his personality. So he'd kind of caper around the room being like, um, you know, hear thou great Anna, whom three realms obey. Where's that from? And would like point at you. And you'd be like, the rape of the log. And he'd be like, which? Canto. And you'd be, I'd be like, I don't fucking know which canto. Um, you know, he'd sort of like tell these stories about his really posh children um, being like, oh, and when I've gone away for the weekend, I'll come back and I'll go bambini, bambini. And they'll say, papa, papa, have you brought us any pan au chocolat? And I was like, oh my God, your children are so fucking posh. Um, so he only had two tutees that year. One was me, one was someone else. And the minute I saw his name as my tutor, I was like, oh my God, this has got to go so badly because we had really different approaches to how we like to look at literature. So I really like to be super theory heavy and bringing in a lot of politics in a way which now looking back on, I treated literary texts as you know, either representing a point of view or not. Mm. And I think that that was definitely a bit clunky to the extent that the first essay which I wrote, uh, which was about the taming of the shrew, I'd like use some Judith Butler. And all he wrote next to that paragraph was, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, there's no denying that this man had a careening ego, right? This ego was like, um, you know, a bird trapped in a room crashing around. Like it was there. Mm. But the thing that it forced me to do was go, okay, I've got to actually engage with text in a different way because otherwise you just won't recognize it. And I think that his lack of recognition of theory was really limiting. The fact that he didn't think that questions of race and gender were that important was super duper limiting. But it forced me to become like quite a technical analyst of text, which has since then served me so well. Mm. So even though like at the time I hated it, I now look back on it and go, your ego kind of did something good for me. I mean, also, it's important to say that we make allowances for hugely talented people, right? So if you have a lecturer or a footballer or a writer or an actor, and they are a narcissist, if they're exceptional at their job, we say, okay, I think this is only a problem when the person is substandard. So I've not watched the rest <laughs> of the film. But if Kate Blanchett is, you know, one of the best in her field, like... She is. Generally, people make allowances for it, right? So, and, and that's just the reality of the situation. I think where the problem stands out with particularly with teaching. I mean, look, imagine you're, where did um, Hegel teach? University of Vienna? Imagine you're going to his sort of, you know, uh, phenom phenomenology lectures in the early 19th century and then somebody's going, oh, God, this guy's got such an ego. <laughs> well, you know what? We're still talking about him 200 years later, so it's probably deserved. You know, like, so I think you've got to have a bit of slack with that. I mean, what do you make of that? I just, I think that pedagogically it's not, 
pedagogically, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't, it's not as conducive, I think, of like trying to, because also the, the personality that you bring into the classroom as a teacher is different to the personality that you bring when you're, you know, delivering, delivering research at a conference or like when you're, you know, going on TV and doing like public intellectual work. You are trying to create an atmosphere that is conducive to exploration and challenge. Because, you know, the story that you you outlined there, I think it's really interesting there because you showed intellectual generosity and a willingness to kind of take his provocation as a as a way, as a as a prompt to reflect on your own self and to say, like, in my defense of what I've how I've chosen to approach this text, now I can really drill down into like, why am I so attached to this? What is it limiting me from doing? What is it enabling me to do? Because no no approach is going to do everything. You know, and sort of having you you took that and were like was like, let me have some critical distance from this. He didn't give you that. And I think, I mean, maybe he did, but from the story that you've said, it sounds like he was just kind of like, this isn't interesting to me. This doesn't feel relevant to me. So, you know, I'm kind of, and that's what the irony there is that I feel like that's what we're always accused of doing Mm. is we're always accused of being unwilling to engage with viewpoints that are Mm. different to us, that we, you know, are, that we have reactive responses to things, that we don't think that if something directly relates to our identity, that it shouldn't be of interest to us. I feel like I experience that much more at the hands of kind of the old guards than I do at the hands, you know, you and I, I engage with like white culture every day. I know everything about white women's hair routines. Do they know anything about mine? No. <laughs> so like, and you know, that that kind of like, I, we make space for the knowledge of other in a way that I don't always feel that the kind of the key people that are driving a lot of this discourse themselves never see, they never think that that should be part of their intellectual journey. I, to- I totally hear that. And maybe to be a dreadful centrist and like sit in between these two positions. I think where my disquiet comes from is going, well, if everything was shaped around me as I was at 21, I probably (laughs) wouldn't have Mm. learned so much. And I think it's that very fact that, no, he didn't give me that space to Mm. come and meet him. I had to kind of like force my way in by being like, Mm. I know what a Zygma is. Mm. Um, And it was because he was in the position of power he was the one who knew more than me, right? You know, as a professor of English mm. literature, that it forced me to grow. Like, I didn't grow because mm. he was kind to me. I grew mm. because he was unkind to me. And it, like I said, I hated it at the time. And mm. I wouldn't want to be like that to my students, but I can only reflect on my own experience and go, I wonder if mm. by calling all acts of intellectual unkindness harm or abuse mm. adjacent mm. in some way... No. You close down the room for some of those experiences where you yeah. go like, I was in a difficult situation mm. one way or another, and it kind of brought out the best in me. Yeah, no, I, I think that that, no, it's, I don't think that you can argue that it's like abusive. I think what what I would say is I think I feel like you, uh, like you as an intellectual would gain from doing more than just saying, ugh, when you see the name Judith Butler, <laughs> like engage with me, tell me why, don't just say like, this oh, is, I did, I did ask you know, why. nonsense identity politics. You know, Judith Butler is not small, this is not small fry. I did like, ask why, you know. and you know what he said? He went, <laughs> I just think she's a dreadful harridan. <laughs> like it was just by. I don't like it was, I mean. it was it was really unprofessional <laughs> and I think because I knew I wasn't getting gonna I wasn't gonna be able to prove my worth by arguing about Judith Butler I had to prove my worth doing something else 
Mm. No, Did I you know mean, what I mean? Like, you're a teacher. Teach me why Judith Butler is bad. <laughs> I mean, I might disagree with you, but like, that's the point. Dreadful uh, Harridan. Oh, uh, uh, it's just like it's literally guttural. Like it's an animal noise. <laughs> Quickly, on what Dahlia said as well. Like, it's something I encounter all the time when you talk to people on the right, conservatives, particularly older men. Let's be honest. And they'll say, the young don't know anything about this nation's history. They've forgotten it all. And I think, mate, first of all, I'm actually interested in biographies of people like Nelson, Wellington, because, look, Britain was the, the central imperial power in the history of our species for several centuries. Kind of important. I know all that. Well, I don't know all of it. I know a fair bit of it. Probably more than some of these people do. Interesting, the other day, I saw a guy tweeting about um, a Muslim praying at a cenotaph in Bristol, saying, like, this is a provocation. I'm sure he doesn't know that around a million Muslims fought for the British Empire in the Second World War. But anyway, park that. And I'm thinking, well, I know about all that stuff, but I also know about Britain's role in getting rid of Mossadegh in the 1950s. I'm also familiar with Chartist histories or, you know, the abolitionist movement in the 19th century. Like, why aren't you? And I think it's a really important point that Dahlia makes is actually the very people claiming that others are ignorant, unread, unsteeped in I'm history. Incurious. Mm. Exactly. They're describing themselves. Every accusation is a confession, as they say. I mean, what do you yeah. make of that? I mean, this must be something which you encounter again and again mm. with the, within the academy, mm. is when you demonstrate a curiosity in other political histories, you're accused of being ignorant of British political history. But when you demonstrate a knowledge of British political history, they go, why are you talking us down as a nation? Yeah, I mean, British people don't like to hear about themselves. And that's, you know, that is the, the kind of fallacy of this. And I think that... Um, this is where the kind of the the lack of intellectual curiosity is so dis, like it's so distressing to me because what they're saying is not you need to learn more about british history or you need to in, understand more about british history that what they're saying is that you need to fall in line with a very particular ahistorical understanding of British exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And that actually when you bring to the forefront some of these histories that are challenging to Britain's idea of itself, that there is a great intolerance to that and a great lack of curiosity to that. And I've seen it described in so many ways, not least, you know, when I was working on um, In the Roads Must Fall campaign, um, the range of things that I saw and the one that really like, I was like, okay, this is what they actually think of us is this idea that teaching alternative memorializations of Britain is dumbing down the curriculum. Mm. And it fundamentally comes from this idea of like, you're too stupid to be here. You know, you're too like, that's, that's what they, that's what they, they associate, you know, these particular forms of knowledge production they associate it with stupidity because of their idea of who's producing it. But I also think, you know, when we talk about this idea of intolerance, you know, when we were campaigning around the statue in, in Oxford, Chris Patton, who was the last colonial governor of the British Empire, he was the one who, quote unquote, handed over Hong Kong to China, called up the radio and said that if we don't like it here, we should leave. Is that... What is that if not an intolerance to ch intellectual challenge or an incuriosity? I don't have the power to call up the radio and tell people who sh and say who should and shouldn't be, you know, in a particular university. But he does. And that's but it, the funny thing is, is the inversion where it's like it's the snowflake student mm. that is the intolerant one. And it's the snowflake student that's not only intolerant, but wields a power that is I didn't know we had this kind of power to, you know, 
chase people out of countries, to chase people out of universities. The chancellor literally went on the radio and said, you shouldn't be here, you don't belong here. I mean, I think this brings us back round to the Juilliard scene in Tar quite nicely. And Mm. it's the relationship between something which is being taught in an elite university, Mm. particularly, and particular kinds of veneration. So when people say, learn your history, they don't mean learn your history, they mean venerate. Mm. Uh, British history. They mean keep the statue of Cecil Rhodes up. Uh, Look at these men as kind of, you know, founding fathers from whom you are descended in some way. And so what if they did a genocide here or there, right? It's actually demanding you have a particular emotional relationship to it. And part of the central tussle in that Juilliard scene is about veneration. It's Kate Blanchett's character, Tar, saying, you must be a supplicant to the music. You must humble yourself before Bach, before Mahler, and you cannot bring your identity here to kind of sully it. And the student who I agree is kind of flimsily written because you don't really get to see them go, I do want to be in conversation with this music and this is me speaking back to it. You kind of just get them like, you know, having a bit of a, having a bit of a strop. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it like gets to that question of, of veneration. I mean, do you find that like you're kind of in, you know, it's not a case of learning. It's a case of like showing sufficient uh, deference to. Yeah. And going back to that whole idea of like history, British history is, you know, quite predictably, hugely interesting, hugely interesting because it's role in the world. And I, I find these contradictions actually encapsulated in conversations around who's the greatest Britain of all time. <laughs> because for me, clearly it's Darwin or, My or, or Newton, right? If you're talking about like in a thousand years time, there'll be physicists who know those people, biologists, if there is an alien civilization and there are generalizable rules of the universe, they'll say, wow, this species sussed it out and these two individuals played a role. Now, they're both white British men. Like, I'm not asking you to say Octavia Butler is like the most important author in the world or that, you know, um, uh, some obscure 19th century mixed heritage abolitionist is actually the most important person in British history. But they can't do that precisely because the whole discourse is about British exceptionalism. And so they say Winston Churchill. Right, because if you say Darwin or Newton, it's like, well, you know, lots of countries have scientists, lots of countries have biologists or people who've made scientific breakthroughs. The Poles can then say, well, we have Copernicus, same kind of thing. Or the Arabs can talk about, you know, various people that they've had in their culture over the over the centuries. So that that default of saying Churchill, the Second World War, clearly the question of the greatest ever Britain serves a political purpose. And like you say, there is a preordained role, right? And there's a preordained answer. That, you know, this is not actually a question. Who is the great? It's not a question. People it's a get cue. so upset it's a when you cue say for the right answer. People get so upset when you say the Russians got to Berlin first. Mm. And I I remember this discussion, uh, and it was going on around the time of you know it was Winston Churchill a racist. You know, was the Bengal famine a form of genocide? What about the things that he said about using poison gas on Arabs? What about you know his um, his actions in sending the army against Welsh miners. I was like, well, hang on, we we are able to have like, you know, a two things true at once view of Stalin on World War II and also presided over the horror of the gulags. Um, why can't we do the same for Churchill? And then people got really mad mm. at me. Mm. And they were like, oh, she wants to have a nuanced view of Stalin, is it? <laughs> you know, Captain Genocide. And I was like, he did win World War II. <laughs> like, that's all I'm saying. And so did Churchill. Did some genocides, yeah. one World War II. I'm just saying, bam, bam. Well, this is where I think the statue, because on the one hand, like the statue's discourse is like boring and overhammed and just frustrating. But on the other hand, I think it is really 
symbolic of the broader contradictions into the, in this claim to academic integrity. And, you know, but then also the very political purpose that the memorialization of history serves. And to me, the Cecil Rhodes statue in particular was like such a good symbol because it was, you know, there was at the same time, there was a similar campaign. I mean, the Oxford campaign was inspired by the South African campaign where, you know, you have this massive statue of Cecil Rhodes and it's right in front of the university. You can't, you know, you can't miss it. In Oxford, it was different. In Oxford, it was like, it's above eye level. So it's right up like on top of the building and it's kind of nestled in. You can't really read or see or un like know who it is. It's kind of, it's in the edifice of the building in a way that is like on the one hand, invisible. You can walk past that building every day and not notice it. You can't see, you can't read who it is. On the other hand, it's hyper-visible. It's on the high street. It's in the building. And to me, that is kind of like how the legacies of empire are engaged with in this country, that they're vis they're hyper-visible and that like every single fucking brick, mm. especially in this city, mm. in London, was built on empire. And yet like the, the naming of it is considered so provocative that it's it, it requires like expulsion. You know, there's like this this need to like expel the person whose name, even just naming the existence of, of empire as like a shaping force of British history and also world history. And the interesting thing is that Cecil Rhodes sits on the front of that building. Cecil Rhodes was barely mentioned in those classrooms. It's barely engaged with in those classrooms. The vast majority of people have never heard of this man mm. because his legacy is an uncomfortable one, you know? And that Aaron, I can see you are chomping. I'm not chomping. You know, I, I've often sort of asked myself, where does the, the cultural memory for all this stuff come from? Because it's clearly so intrinsic to the British, let's be honest, the English ruling mm. class. And as I get older, I sort of think, you know, maybe Oliver Cromwell? Because you had somebody seize political power, they literally melted the crown jewels, got rid of the monarchy, beheaded the king, and they cancelled Christmas. And like, to this day, they, they, li they, they literally cancelled Christmas, right? It wasn't like a, a sun scare story. And to this day, we have annual scare stories about ideologues trying to cancel Christmas. And I think mm. maybe this has been going on for several hundred oh, years. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like, and it's such a deep, profound part of the psyche of the English aristocracy, the English ruling class, which none of us have any idea about because we don't go to their schools. We don't go to their members clubs. This is just mm. a hypothesis here. But that is like... It's, it's part of the sociocultural DNA for them. This is what happens when somebody with ideas takes power. They end up, uh, you know, a dictator. They end up cancelling Christmas. They melt the crown jewels. And they, you know, they, they besmirch the country. They sink it into, you know, into anarchy. And, of course, then we have the return of, of sane governance with the glorious revolution. And this is what all of these guys were taught well into the 1960s. They'll say that. A key part of the British myth and British exceptionalism is... The Glorious Revolution, which is basically a restoration of aristocratic rule. No, no, after no. This, so the Glorious Revolution was something else. Yeah, well, it's after the Restoration yeah, is the Restoration. Well, there's Charles II, then there's James. Okay. It's kind of all the same thing, right? Wait, well, you, you, okay, you're broadly correct. It's within several. <laughs> but the point is, it's the same century. It's within several decades yeah, yeah. of one another. The story of uh, Queen Mary, by the way. Sorry, Queen Anne. Is it Queen Anne? She couldn't bear a child, so yes. we have William. That's that's another. That's for another day. I think she had 17 children. All of them die in childhood. One reaches the age of 10. This is the heir 
to the throne and then he dies. Anyway. That's the great thing about the movie The Favourite here. I mean, I'm not just going to go on and on about Oscar contenders, except I am. The Favourite, okay. A brilliant film film. about um, Queen Anne and her relationship with Sarah Churchill. And one of the things I love most about it is that it doesn't try and make the aristocracy of the time aesthetic and relatable. Because that's Mm. the thing, you know, when you see Keira Knightley in a powdered wig and she's kind of like... It's like, like fundamentally disgusting. You know, but it's just yeah. like, it's like, oh, you're trying to be beautiful yeah, to like yeah, modern yeah. standards. Whereas in The Favourite, um, it's just, these guys are fucking weird. You know, they're <laughs> yeah. racing lobsters. That's what they do with their time. The prime minister sits there racing lobsters. And there's this, this amazing scene where there's some chamber music or something like that. You know, so it's all like and it's just someone saying the word music over and over again and I was like oh this is really funny and this just like gets right to the heart of the weirdness of the aristocracy and I think that um, if, if you want to think about the way in which that particular century from the restoration to the glorious revolu- revolution um, plays into our contemporary culture I think one is that we always have this need to go the, the aristocrats are human the aristocracy are human and they're just like us. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, of course, the, you know, great um, observation of Oliver Cromwell and of, you know, Robespierre and Danton is, well, they are like us insofar as they can die. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But other than that, we have no shared interests. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the, the thing about, like, the kind of, the ways in which, this desire to protect the legacies of particular, especially because the way that history is taught and understood, you know, it's almost as if like statues are a reductive way of learning about history because it's like great men, you know, or great women or whatever, like ossified into this like particular sort of like representation of themselves in a way that is implicitly glorifying, right? And it doesn't allow for much nuance. But like what I think is really important is that the desire to protect that legacy is about a, desi- a desire to protect a particular power structure that, structure that is still in play, mm. right? You know, one thing that I, and I, I hate bringing it always back to Rosemont's Fall because it really wasn't that interesting a campaign. It just became interesting because everyone lost their mind over it. Um, one thing that I found really interesting in that campaign was initially before the tabloids got hold of the story, Oriel College, which is the college that has the statue, said, we'll do a consultation process. We'll do a consultation process with academics, with students and with people in the local community to decide what we should do with this statue. That seems like a reasonable thing to do, right? That's democracy. Yeah, I get, you know, we'll, we'll field opinions and think about what we should do, whatever. The process got pulled when the tabloids reported on it and current donors to Oriel College wrote letters Um, threatening to withdraw their funding and threatening to remove Oriel College from their will. And there was this fantastic line in this letter that some anonymous donor wrote, probably an arms dealer or something. And he said, because let's not forget, Cecil Rhodes was a donor of Oriel College. That's why his statue's there. He gave the donation on the condition that a statue would be built of him. He bought the soul of the university. And there was this line in one of these letters that was written by these donors and said, is this how you treat your donors? He saw him. You have him, to kill people, sure. He saw himself. I presume it's a he. It could be, you know, it could be um, a girl boss. You know, they saw themselves in the tradition mm. of Cecil Rhodes. And, you know, given that this person is probably like a fossil, an oil baron or like, a, you know, some like a 
arms dealer, they are correct. And there's this (laughs) sense of like, but this university is where I go to launder my reputation and not just my personal reputation, but the reputation of the system that I benefit from. And the idea of that being challenged is seen as a present threat. And I, I, I only wish it actually was because it really wasn't. It was liberal as hell, but yeah. <laughs> uh, Aaron? I think this is something as you get older that a lot of people come to terms with their like mortality and they start asking that question, actually, how will I be remembered? And they see things like Rose Must Fall. And I think it did probe that question quite quite sharply, you know, for a big cohort of people who, let's be honest, are really powerful in the country's media political structures, older white men over over 60. And all of a sudden it's like, well, if they're doing this now, what, what will be the case in 50 to 60 years time? And I look at these people as kind of victims of the 20th century in a way, because they have no political cause. They, they never really thought about, well, how will I be remembered? Because that late capitalism and the kind of the temporality it enshrines is about the now, nothing changes, ideology is over. Well, first of all, it's back. Mm-hmm. And if it comes back in a serious way, both right and left, which I think is what's happening, then yes, you're going to be remembered in quite specific and probably quite uncharitable ways. Uh, and, and I think that's something that many of them worry about. You know, I, I had the the misfortune. I did a TV gig with Kelvin McKenzie once. Like a How was that? <laughs> He's, charming is not the right word. He's perfectly affable, but within 30 seconds, you can see he's a complete scumbag. Because he's just making jokes, you know, so an assistant would say, oh, you want something like this? And he'd say, oh, well, you won't be here next week, will you? Saying stuff like that. And it's a joke, but you can see he's got a really nasty edge to him. And I was just watching him for a couple of minutes, and I just thought, how do you think you're going to be remembered by people? Mm. Not like not like your best mate, like by... The generation that comes after you, when you pass away, how do you think history is going to document you and your deeds and your personality, your character? It ain't going to be good. And I think that is something that this whole conversation around Rose Must Fall and decolonizing the curriculum or whatever, I think that is that is how it's relevant to these people in a very immediate, visceral, personal way. Um, in the grand tradition of Jerry Springer, may I get your final thoughts? Aaron, you begin. Yeah, it was something I was thinking about as we were talking with regards to the um, the, the centrists, female columnists and sort of members of the media class in this country. And that is conditions determine consciousness. Um, And this is only something you get, and you sort of hinted at it earlier on, as you sort of move up the class ladder. I've identified as being working class in the past. My mum was a cleaner, my dad's a taxi driver. But, you know, um, we have... The Vara Media, we're in London, I went to university, I now only drink M&S gold tea. <laughs> it's pretty fair to say I'm middle class, right? It's pretty fair to say. And as that happens, you, you see how this works. And I'll give you an example. I did a TED Talk last year in Vancouver, and they flew me over business class. And then, of course, I had to take my wife. It's a free holiday for her, so they said, okay, well, we'll give you two first-class tickets instead. So we, First we, class? Sorry, no, I think... Mate, look economy. at the girl in. No, we went from business Hello. class to economy business. Okay, all right, economy yeah. business. Oh. Which was just, I was like, well, people fly like this? Even economy business was like extraordinary. Then we go to the hotel. Obviously, I complain because it was like too noisy and shit. And they're like, we've got one place left. It's the, uh, the it's not the four-star hotel. It's at the five-star hotel down the road. And it's the top floor suite. 
great. Okay. Works out this is like a $3,000 a night suite. I've never I've never been anywhere like this. I didn't realize people live like this. Okay. Room service, can I have a ginger tea? Yeah, anything. anything. They treat you like a demigod. <laughs> right? And after about two days of this, I thought, now I understand why Prince Andrew thinks he's so fucking funny. <laughs> <laughs> they laugh at everything because they, you know, particularly, yeah. particularly North America, because the tip culture and whatnot. They were sadly disappointed in that regard. I mean, yeah, I tried my best, but I didn't belong in that suite. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it was interesting for me because you know, you, I just had a, a snapshot of that life for three or four days, and I was, I was saying to my wife, I said, "Look, if we did this for six months, yeah, I would be a fucking asshole." <laughs> I would be, it would be, you'd have to be an incredibly strong-willed person, incredibly resilient to stay the same and remember mm. who you are. And very quickly, I remember Yanis Varoufakis saying this, you know, once you've done business class on a plane, you know, I'm, I'm flying EasyJet to Venice for, for, with my in-laws for one of their birthdays. So there you go. I'm still grounded. But, the money um, didn't change me, it baby. It didn't change me. But he said this, he said, once you've done business class, then you fly economy and you start to look around and go, I'm better than this. Right, conditions determine consciousness, and that is again one of the, the big insights of Marx, and it should be central to left wing thinking. But if you say this to these kinds of people, they just go, "It's nonsense." I don't think these things because I'm wealthy and privileged, and I come from the background that I do. I just think them because they're right. Well, you know, maybe have a bit of critical reflection on that, and I think that is one of the purposes of the left in the media to say, "Well, maybe these things that you think are true." and are just like, you know, as real as walking, talking, and breathing air, maybe they're not. That's our, that's our big part of our job. Do you know the first time I ever met Yanis Varoufakis? Have I told you the story? Flying business class? N absolutely <laughs> not. It was in 2015, I think, when he'd come over to London for the negotiations with George Osborne. So this was when he was still the finance minister of Greece. And he walked into the pub where I was working to talk to a journalist. and. He ordered a Peroni and sat down because, you know, Europeans, they don't understand that you get served at the bar the whole time. So I like <laughs> took it over and I really admired him, like particularly at that point, seeing everything he was doing for Greece. And I just, I interrupted the conversation he was having with whatever journalist. And I just went, I've just got to say, I really admire everything you're doing for the Greek people and wow. keep sticking it to the Troika. And he was kind of like, looked at me a bit puzzled and he didn't say it. He said, thank you. But I could tell in his mind, he was going, thank you. English barmaid. <laughs> um, and then a uh, couple of years later, we met on a panel and he introduced himself to me. And I was like, nah, we met before. You drink Peroni. Um, but yeah, that was a great pub. Um, I would say Christian Guru Murthy drinks a gin and slimline tonic. <laughs> Same line. with Jon Snow, the Channel 4. You must have sketched out the journal. And I just thought, wow, this guy is box office. He's got like bartenders coming up to him. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I didn't, right. I didn't make any cameo in any, any uh, features with Varoufakis that I read, unfortunately. I think that seems like a really good place to wrap up. So thank you for joining us for what has been a marathon edition of Downstream. This has been Dahlia Gabriel. This has been Aaron Bastani. And I have been Ash Larka. Thank you. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.